You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. Bracken, I see you have a new uh, piece of wall art hanging on your on your oh, wall. Yeah. Keeping it real close to me. This is my baby. This is my brand new road bike. Yeah? Yeah. No, there's something <laughs> special about that road bike because it, it's not meant for a man. Not, not any man. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> It's a woman's bike. <laughs> Let's be upfront about that. Um, it has remarkably similar geometry to a men's bike, and it was $900 cheaper. <laughs> I mean, the bubblegum pink is going to stand out. Well, they, they said the color was Merlot, and I feel like that sums me up. That's a classy color. Is it actually Merlot? Is that the color? That's, that's what it's called, yeah. It's really maroon, and that was my high school color anyway. So I feel like that's marketing at its finest right there. Merlot. I'm more of a Cabernet guy. Okay. I'm a Aldi Lambrusco. I don't even know what Lambrusco is. <laughs> Go to Aldi, get their Lambrusco. $6.99 for a, a, a liter of cola. <laughs> It'll change your life. <laughs> All right. What? Uh, so tell me about the bike. I'm actually, I got a high-end road bike myself. So I'm kind okay, of Okay. So this is not high-end. This is their highest-end entry road bike. Okay. So a 105 group set, um, carbon fork. It's aluminum uh, alloy body, but it is, it feels like carbon. I've ridden carbon and you know, when you tap with your fingernails on carbon and it yeah. just feels, that's how this aluminum feels. It's like that hybrid aluminum that feels like carbon. So I, I'm super impressed. It's well under 20 pounds and uh, I got it shipped for $6.99. $6.99? No, I mean $6.99 total to my house oh. rather than list price of $15.99 without shipping. However, it came at a cost. <laughs> which which is? I well, I bought from a bike store, but I used their eBay. They they put up an eBay shop in these times. Yeah. So I ordered through eBay and I haven't apparently used eBay since I moved to our new home. And so it shipped to my old uh duplex. Oh. And it would because of the type of shipping insurance that they put on it, I wasn't allowed to make modifications to the shipment. I couldn't divert it. I couldn't sign for it in advance and let someone else pick it up. I couldn't have it shipped to um, any anywhere else. So I had to drive out to Lake Geneva uh, yesterday, and it was delivery window was between eight thirty a.m. and eleven thirty a.m. <laughs> so you like, hung out in Lake Geneva for three hours. I got there at eight to be certain, and it showed up at like twelve fifteen. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> so I just sat there for you know four four and a half hours waiting Worth on this it. thing to arrive everyone like in the neighborhood just staring at me because i'm just in my car in front of the house hanging out for four and a half hours <laughs> well, you, you didn't use anything productive you didn't do anything like well i, I did know. i was like i was working and like i did a couple of coaching calls but i was just this guy in a car in front of their house and they didn't know why and i had had the the, the arrow bars shipped there as well and they had arrived the day before and i I couldn't get a hold of the people because I still have the number of the lady who lives next door. So I texted her and I'm like, hey, could you just find out if the package is there? And she's like, yeah, they didn't get back to me. So I walk up to the front door and I see a lady through the window sitting on the couch reading something. And I <laughs> knock on the door after being in front of her house for like two hours. 
and they never answer. So I ring the doorbell and they never answer. I look over and she's not there anymore. So she just wouldn't come to the door. And I went back out in front of her house in my in her car in my car and sat for two more hours. She probably thought you were trying to talk to them about our Lord and Savior or something. Back in Maybe, there. but I had to be creeping her out because she knew I was there. She intentionally didn't answer the door. And then I proceeded to sit in front of their house for another two hours in my car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a little screams creep, man. I still only have my arrow bars, but I've got the bike. So does that bike come with like a built-in uh, wine glass holder then with its Merlot coloring? I think I'm going to use my camel pack for that. Oh, yeah. You want to, not enough liquid in a glass. No. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Well, congrats on your new bike. I have a, uh, I have a, I have a Trek uh, Madone from back. Oh, in you the do day. have a Madone. Yeah, and I um I bought this. I got a new job back in 2010, and uh, the job I did not start yet, but it was a salary in which I could now afford this bike on a payment plan. Well, I ended up quitting that job three weeks into it because I hated it, and so I had a four thousand dollar bike. I had to pay for it. it. Took me like <laughs> at that time, it took me like two years to pay it off. It was stupid. I still have it though, and it's great. Yeah. Yeah, so you're what, what frame size are you riding? I think like a 56. I'm on a 56 too. Yeah, I'm pretty big. I'm pretty big. I want to yeah. be all bunched up and racy on that <laughs> yeah. thing. You are. Uh, tell, yeah. us about the, tell us about the brake handles real quick. Tell us about the brake handles? <laughs> yeah, tell me about the brake handles. Am I missing well, something? You told me because it's a woman's bike that the brake handles are. <laughs> <laughs> so I was looking on. I was looking for a reason not to buy a woman's bike. And everything that I read about it, like some guys on forums, like I work at a bike store, I fit men to women's bikes all the time. It's the same grade, everything like it's, it's, it's right. It's the same specs. You're fine. If anything, it has a little bit longer reach and lower stack, which is perfect if I'm riding a slightly smaller frame anyways. And then the kicker, like, but sometimes they make like the reach to the brakes and the gears a little bit smaller for a woman's hand. (laughs) (laughs) Sold. (laughs) You got me. That was really, yeah, you should never go back to a man's bike. No, I, I can I can reach the brakes with with all my fingers now. That's amazing. Instead of just like your middle one. <laughs> yeah, I had one of those like dinosaur trash grabbers I had to use to <laughs> squeeze the brakes on my old bike. That's nice. That's nice. Um, all right, Bracken. Guess what today is? I'm your guest, Bracken. It is your time to shine today, Bracken. It is your big special day. Like a butterfly coming out of my chrysalis. Were you, I don't know, your chrysalis? You weren't, uh, you weren't able to sleep last night. You were so excited, I bet. Oh, man, I've been practicing my lines all night. <laughs> I bet. I have a few <laughs> no cards I'm going to flash up to the screen for cues that I want you to ask me because I have a really good line ready. Okay, and yeah, teeing me up to ask you very yeah. flattering questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we thought this would be fun to do. You know, I, I know a lot of you probably know Bracken. For, he's been around a little longer than I have, better than me, but maybe a lot of you don't know either of us very well. And so this episode and the next Friday's episode, we're going to do get to know your host episodes. If you're sick of us talking, I'm sorry, you're getting more of it. And we're starting with Bracken being the man of the hour right now. I appreciate that. First first of all, Kirk, I know you're you're running the interview, so I'm not going to Jack Bauer or Matt B. Davis this thing. Oh, but, thank you. So worried about that. But I am for I'm going to lead you into one question first, and then you can then you can go do your thing. I'm going to sit back and okay. stay out of your lane. Um, I would like you to share with the listeners your in-depth scientific method for deciding which of us went first in our interview process. Oh, yeah. This is a science, people. So uh, Bracken really enjoys using photos of me for the uh, small uh, episode icons, or I use, I use them on the Instagram. And I look back, and the last three photos were of me, Bracken. 
So we need a photo of your smiling mug next because it'd be too much me if we interviewed me first. It'd be too many of me in a row. He, he texted me last night and said, hey, we're going to go with you uh, based on the fact that we've used more pictures of me. <laughs> well, hey, I, that's I, irrefutable. That's NC and he didn't, yeah, he didn't rebuttal. So I was And, and it's because you're just better at social media than I am. You have pictures of you doing every activity that we talk about on the podcast where I have to like stretch to find something where I fit that topic with a picture of myself. Yeah, you need to step it up on social media, Bracken. Yeah, and you're a victim of your own success. So, all right, that's it. Terrible. I'm here to be, I'm here to be uh, dissected. Dive yeah, in, Kirk. We hear that now and we'll see how this goes. I am an open book. I, uh, all right. Um, Bracken, why don't you introduce yourself to the people? Who are you, Bracken Cracker? Well, I am an ex-elite obstacle racer. <laughs> don't say ex. Uh, I am Bracken Crocker, co-host of this glorious podcast, a mm-hmm. running and obstacle racing coach, uh, an aspiring athlete, husband, father of three, and a Midwestern boy, which you cannot tell by my dialect. It's true. Hey. I am. I have more of a Midwestern accent. Uh, what do you mean, aspiring athlete? It's been a minute. <laughs> it's been but you have, but you have intentions of. I have intentions of being a really good athlete someday. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna get into that later, if that's okay with you. But see, yeah. for you, I wanted to. I, I think it's interesting. So Bracken and I, listeners, uh, we haven't gotten to know each other until like the last three years, really, three or four years. So Bracken and I don't go that far back. Um, I know you, but I don't like, I wasn't there for like your drunk idiot moments in college, or I wasn't there when you were a kid, or I don't know those stories. I don't know like your upbringing. I know you from like Bracken Spartan Pro, who I looked up to and started to follow on Instagram and then got the balls to reach out to to ask for coaching Bracken. And now we become buddies because we just fucking get along. But isn't it funny looking back at that? (laughs) It is funny looking back at that. Oh yeah. I remember, I remember when we first started working together and I remember even being a little like nervous about uh, about reporting in and wanting to impress you with my 5K time trial off the bat, and all that stuff, just like any other new athlete. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, man. And then, then you found out the truth. <laughs> hey, I did find out. I got some stacks from Jack Jack Bauer, but I am only I think I'm only two and four against you all time in races. Did you know that? I got some dirt on you. Okay, let's let's get to that later. Then I'm, we'll get I, to that later. I'm trying to think of what those two are. We'll get to that later. Where I beat you? Yeah, uh, Jacksonville last year and uh, Minnesota Mountain Stadium, Mountain Stadium. Oh yeah, or, or uh, Mountain. Sorry, race, mm-hmm. sprint race. Um, but anyways, we'll get to that later. So for you, man, I look at you as like one of the few like true athletes in this sport, and I also feel like your love for this sport was you would have chosen other avenues of athleticism or athletics possibly if you could have. And this running thing, you almost just couldn't deny the fact that you were decent at it and had to pursue it, but you had other loves, right? So I want to go back to like, as a kid, like, um, did you know you were always a good runner or was it always a byproduct of your athletics? It was both. Uh, Running for me was like, when you hear about people who were friends their whole life and kept coming back to each other and finally got married, that's how running was for me. Like okay. I was always tempted by everything else, but at the end of the day, running just kept like telling me like, this is the truth for you. So I, okay. early on, like I ran everywhere. I was that kid that loved running. My parents, when uh, they, they tell me this all the time, they love the story that like sitting on the steps or getting sent to my room worked okay. But the best punishment for me is they'd made me run around our neighborhood. So like if I was just being out of control or wasn't listening or whatever, they'd say, all right, three block, three laps around the block. 
And by the time, like, I'd run first lap, if really mad at them. And then second lap, I'd try to run faster than the first. And by the third, I'd like forget that I was in trouble and I'd come home and I was just a great kid again. Uh, they knew that it wasn't to like get rid of Penta. It wasn't an actual punishment. It was both. It, it was like, he needs a redirection. And we also know like, this is <laughs> like, I guess <laughs> exercise was my love language at that time. You were a little squirrely <laughs> as a young kid. I don't think I was a little squirrely, but I was obsessed with physicality. Like, okay. I, I was the, I was the kid that was just always outside doing something. We have pictures and videos of me when I, before I could walk crawling in the backyard with a baseball bat, hitting a ball back and forth. Okay. And like, I learned to walk and I was trying to like dribble a basketball up and down the driveway. Like I, I just, I always had a ball or, or some sort of implement in my hand or I was running or I, I was just a very physically active kid. And I was in a physically active family. I can relate to you on that outside thing. When I got in trouble, um, my mom would ground me outside. <laughs> she'd be like get the f out of my hair you just go burn some energy so she like you can't come in the house pee behind the shed and you need three hours and i yeah. get grounded outside just to work that off so um all right so you're like six months old and you're dribbling a basketball trying to yeah yeah just that's the way it was yeah and I, I, it's what i was surrounded by everyone in my family was an athlete and it was never pushed upon me but that's just the environment we grew up in i didn't know any different you're one of four one of four, yeah. Two sis, two older sisters. One older sister. I'm second oldest. Then my brother, and then we have a younger sister. Okay, and why don't you tell everybody? You come from a pretty special uh, breed, we'll call it. Tell us about your siblings and how they're all athletes as well. well I mean, first off, my mom was a uh, state champion in volleyball and an all-state sprinter in high school. Oh. She was she played shortstop on a men's team when that wasn't really allowed. And she was one of those people that would have had the full ride to college, but they weren't doing much women's athletics at the time. Oh. Um, my dad took a full ride uh, division one, Northern Illinois University and played quarterback and um, went undrafted, but had uh, tryouts with the Cowboys, the Niners, the Bears, signed a contract with the Bears for a little bit, played in the CFL. So he was a stud as well. His uh, One of his wide receivers in college was his brother. Um, like that, It's just everyone in the family was athletic. My brother, my mom's side had runners. My dad's side had basketball and football players. And we were all kind of like that mix right in between. Mm. My older sister was on the U.S. Uh, National Rhythmic Gymnastics team. At 12, she moved to uh, uh, Illinois, not Illinois, um, Atlanta, Roswell, to train at the Olympic Training Center, and then also trained in the Lake Placid Center and Colorado Springs. So wow. she moved away to be a professional gymnast starting at 12. Um, my younger Dang. brother ran in college, uh, did the Spartan thing for a little bit. My little sister, my little sister, who is like, what, 25 now? Still your little sister. Um, plays pro ball in Spain. She's entering, she just signed uh, back with this team for her fourth year of playing professional basketball in Spain. So like everyone in our family does something and that's just that's the environment wild. we grew up in. So really, I mean, if Macaulay wanted to pursue pursue this uh, Spartan thing, you could be the least athletically inclined human in your family. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, like realistically, I could be the least successful athlete in our family. And he's a, he's a better, he's a better runner than I am. He's just, his passion hasn't aligned with his talent in, in sports ever. Okay. So what sports did you grow up playing then when you were, let's go back to, you know, now you're like just a kid, young kid. What, what were you playing? Uh, gymnastics was the first thing we did. My mom was a gymnastics coach. And so we grew up in the gymnastics gym, like from two till 13, I was a, a gymnast. Really? Uh, traveling 
out of state doing gymnastics. I've always admired like being a male gymnast is like a secret like aspiration of mine. Yeah. I always thought that was just such a badass sport and such a true like out of display of fitness. So that's what you did for years. Yeah, it, it started in like fourth or fifth grade. I started playing soccer. I played baseball my whole life. So baseball and soccer and gymnastics. Um, but I, I got to the point in gymnastics where it was kind of like I had to choose or get off the pot. I was getting to the point where it was two to three hour practices, five days a week, and um, competition season was long. And it was commit fully to gymnastics at the expense of all other sports or commit to all other sports at the expense of gymnastics. And for me, mm -hmm. it was an easy choice. I, I was getting to the point where I was starting to get to things that were scary for me in gymnastics, you know, release moves, um, a lot of time in the air. And I was never super comfortable with that world. Uh, gymnastics is one of those things too, isn't it? Like from what I understand, like if you're going to commit to gymnastics, it is your life more, probably more so than any other sport. The amount of time those kids spend yeah. in, the, in the gym is insane. And I'd watch my sister. Uh, uh, do you know the name uh, Chelsea Memel? I don't. Okay. She was the Olympic gymnast from, from my hometown. We grew up together. So I'd watch my sister go to Olympic trials. I'd watched my, not, but I don't have trials, world championships for gymnastics. I'd watch Chelsea. Uh, go to the Olympics and a world championship. She was a world champion. I'd seen what it was to do, and I didn't want any part of that. And huh. I, I wasn't that good. I, I I would have topped out at a regional level, but uh, I was I was like l literally getting afraid of the 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 moves and the skills I had to do. And I was also at the stage where I wanted to play team sports. Uh, and you're a little tall for a gymnast too, actually. I wasn't. <laughs> I grew very late. Uh, I, I had a good build for a gymnast at the time, but yeah, I, I would have outgrown that. So at that point, I in seventh, eighth grade, um, eighth grade, I quit and and took up basketball. I left four so I could start playing basketball, and uh, and that was it. The basketball, um, does that bet you that's something you were playing in like your driveway growing up? You knew like you were decent at it. I that's all I had ever done was played in my driveway, and my dad worked with us with whatever we wanted to do. Like I was never pushed one time, but if we wanted to do something, we received unlimited support in that. And so he worked with me all the way up to tryouts, like lefty layups, offhand dribbling, you know, every at post, I was four, like seven in eighth grade, <laughs> like post moves, baby, like everything he could possibly teach me. And so, so I could show up and make up for the years that I hadn't played organized ball. You know, and I didn't even touch on this. You, uh, you grew up in Milwaukee, right? West Dallas. Yeah. Yeah. West Dallas. Okay. Which Moved time? to West Dallas in high school. Okay. Where were you before that? Milwaukee. Oh, you were in, in Milwaukee proper? Yeah. Nice. I lived in Milwaukee for a while. Outskirts, but it was still Milwaukee proper. Got it. So now you're uh, you're playing basketball and that's all you're playing. You're just solely playing basketball? No, basketball, now? baseball, soccer. Everything. Um, right. And then I started running track in seventh and eighth grade too. Which sport were you the best at before you hit track? Uh, probably soccer. Yeah. Midfielder? Yeah. I was I was a end line to end line midfielder. Yeah, all right. Good I man. Played on a, a pretty subpar team, and I just got to just go wild. Just freaking run, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um. But I was also I was a pretty good baseball player at that age. Okay, so you were focusing on a lot of stuff, and then you went to track and field. Tell me I went about to high that. school. Um. I open enrolled into West Dallas for high school because we were going to move there. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, and so our soccer team hadn't won a conference game in four years, 
and mm. I love competing and I hate losing. And so I started running cross country because I refuse to hate play. losing. You hate losing more than I think anybody I know. It's it's almost not almost. It's a it's a negative part of my persona. <laughs> I only know that because after a race that you don't you're not happy with you're gone. You're gone. Suddenly there's Bracken is not at the facility. I know you know yourself well enough to just get out of there. Yeah. And, yep. and it's, and I've taken some flack for that. It's not a, it's not a, Oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go pout thing. It's a, I, I, I'm not mature enough to fake it well enough to be pleasant to be around. And I generally come back to the facility after an hour or two, but I need to get away. It's something I've, I've gotten better at. And it's been better since being a coach where I can like, stay and just go watch one of my athletes like in the open race or the age group race. And then I can kind of get away from my own self-pity there. But yeah, I have a, I really, my entire life I've struggled with losing. So I quit soccer to avoid losing. And I start. I took up cross country. Some would say that was a smart decision. You weren't setting yourself up for failure. That's right. Yeah. And I wouldn't say it's a matter of maturity, lack of maturity, by the way, Bracken, to leave a race if you're not happy with your performance. I think that's a display of maturity to know yourself well enough to get out of there for a minute cool down and come back for me. I got to go right to the beer tent. I got to be like, I just needed two beers to just like tolerate my own situation today. That's how I do it. Yeah. And the thing is, I know I'm going to, I'm going to whine and complain or like vent and no one wants that. Mm -hmm. Half the field had a bad race. Like no one wants to hear everyone talk about it. And the people that did well, they deserve to be the ones telling the stories and like having people talk to them. I don't want to like bring everyone down. So I can go do it by myself for an hour or two and then come back and be like a productive member of society, or I can just mope around all day. And I wish that wasn't me, but it is. Yeah. I kind of the same way too. I just, you blast some Miley Cyrus in your car and then come back to the uh, venue. So high school, I, I took up cross country. Yeah. You took up cross country to avoid being a loser. Mm -hmm. All right. What, so what happened? Um, I was, I was moderately successful. We didn't have like a huge history of success in our program. We'd had a few outliers, state qualifiers throughout the years, but um, we didn't have like this really productive program. And there were three of us, two, two buddies of mine who came in as freshmen and we were all moderately successful. And that kind of like started, we, we, we were also like not total out like rejects in our school. We weren't mm -hmm. like the top of the food chain, but we were close enough that running started to become acceptable throughout that time, which was kind of cool. So I could, <laughs> I could run cross country and not be like a total outcast for it. What was, what, what were you like? What kind of guy were you in high school? If other people had to be like, that's Bracken, Bracken's this dude. How would you label yourself? Which I hate, of course, the high school labels, but how would people perceive you? I don't, I really don't know because I was, I was two totally different people in high school. I came in at five foot, one half inch, 102 pounds. I was basically a little kid with grown ups around me, you know? Okay. So I was like probably this little kid who probably tried a little bit too hard to be funny and fit in, but I was also pretty athletically talented. So like I was on every team and uh, a contributing member. So I was like in the realm, but like I was an outsider because I was a little kid. And then I grew up as a, throughout high school and then I became whoever I was, but you know how at high school is like your roles get kind of entrenched early. So I feel like high school was a holding pattern for like me becoming who I was later where I knew like, all right, this isn't me. This isn't my, my ceiling. But like when I get off to college, I can finally like spread my wings a little bit. I feel like cross country is sort of a sport of misfits in general, but there's all, there's always like one or two true athletes that will come out to either like facilitate another sport or to just stay active in the fall. Mm -hmm. 
Um, was that kind of how you looked at it? Yeah, I, I said that, but I was way too competitive to be that. Like there, there was the moment practice started, like I was a hundred percent in on cross country. And okay. then the moment it ended, I was a hundred percent in on basketball. And the moment that ended, I was a hundred percent back in on track. And the moment that ended, I was a hundred percent in on baseball. Cause we played summer ball in Southeastern Wisconsin. So I, I, I could play all four sports with only like a week or two overlap between track and baseball. Do you feel like your uh, hand in a number of cookie jars limited your potential in any or all of those sports? It limited my potential in all of them because I yeah. never trained in an off season for anything. My off season just was another season. Like summer was your base building time. I was playing baseball. So I, and I didn't have like the drive to work. I had the drive to compete. So my ceiling was limited in all of it, but my passion was like super high for all because I never burnt out. I just went from one season to the next. Then it was like, boom, refilled passion. I'm all in on this sport. There's something to say about that, actually, just coming back in with renewed vigor. And it's also, from a runner standpoint, you're not going to peak too early in the season, that's for sure. I raced my way into shape every year. I hammered intervals, and I raced my way into shape. And that's what almost our whole school did. We had very few people. In fact, you were you were kind of like talked about behind your back if you trained in the offseason for running at our school, because why would you commit and take it so seriously when there's so many other sports to play? That's the way we looked at it, unfortunately. Yeah, that is unfortunate. So you would literally just do baseball practice all summer and not run a lick. And then you'd show up to cross country practice and your first day of running that year would be like that day. I'd, I'd run a time or two per week. There'd be some weeks I'd run three times then a week I'd run once. Sometimes my running was like, I'd run a mile over to my buddy's house and we'd play three on three basketball all afternoon. And then I'd jog home at night. Okay. No, real I training. was active all summer, but I wasn't training for cross. And this whole time, you're like, I am going to be an athlete of some sort in my life moving forward. Like, I still plan to be an athlete. I firmly believe that I was going to be a college baseball player and then find – because I, I always found a way. I was never the biggest, strongest, fastest. I was the craftiest. I was the cagiest. Like, I always found a way to succeed. And I thought, like, I'm going to find a way onto a college baseball team, and then I'm going to find a way to get drafted. And I was like fairly like certain I was going to play minor league ball. That was my that was my goal. When did that dream come crashing down, Bracken? <laughs> my, <laughs> uh, in college, yeah, I kept it all the way through college. But in high school, I, like, I was I was I was I wasn't a dominant physical baseball player, but I I played varsity for uh, four years. Oh wow! Um, I I got brought up at the end of my freshman year for a varsity tournament, so really three and a quarter years. But I started the next three years on varsity as an undersized kid until I grew in. Um, I was all conference. I, I I was good enough. You know, batted well over four hundred, pitched, played short. Like I I did enough that I was like, all right, I have the tools set to play in college. Stud. I've been around you enough and just doing stupid things like doing forty meter spear throws and other things to know that you probably move as or more athletically than anybody that I know. I compare you to like a Hunter McIntyre who moves the least athletically out of any athlete I know. <laughs> and it's true, by the way. That is a true statement. And I He's know a straight true. line powerhouse, but he is. do not make him break out a straight line. <laughs> try, try to watch Hunter McIntyre play basketball. <laughs> You'll be on your back rolling. Um, anyways, so point being is dude, I've seen you move and you are a freaking stud. You can move in all planes of motion and make it look effortless and easy and fluid. So I don't doubt that for a second. So why I, I just want to hone on the baseball thing, because I know you talked about that a lot in the past. Like what, where did that go wrong? 
when did when did that happen where you actually had to like wave the white flag? Well, it kind of started earlier. It started in cross country my senior year. I took cross seriously that senior year. I wasn't in great shape coming in, but I raced my way into good shape and I had finally grown. I was probably 5'10", 5'11", by this point, started to uh, started to fill out a little bit. And coming into our conference meet, I was finally like one of the guys that could maybe like do something for the team. Um, I'd, I'd finally started running in the 16s, which on our cross-country courses was okay. And uh, the day before our conference meet, we did a morning run. So we'd have 24 hours to recover. And I rolled my ankle. And I had to like hobble back, walk the last two miles back to school, spent all day like icing it in the trainer's room. I taped it up. I ran and I was terrible at conference. So then I had one week until regionals. We do conference regionals, qualify from regionals to state. In Um, track? Across as well. Oh, you did? Yeah, we have to qualify to state from regionals. That's how much older I am than I'm from Wisconsin. I ran the Wisconsin system. We did not have to do that in cross when I did it. Interesting. We went right to sec- everybody went to sectionals, and then you just qualified out of sectionals to state. Oh, sorry, I called it regional state. Yeah, it's sectional state. S- same okay. thing. We had one meet qualification go, um, and we were we were Wisconsin's D one, D two, D three. Division one is the big one, and then it trickles down. So we were D one big schools, um, and I got to sectionals a week later, and my my ankle just wasn't right, and uh, I taped it up. And coming in with a quarter mile to go, I was in sixth place. Um, they still take top, top five then? Top five go. And I was right with this one guy and we kicked all the way in together and I just couldn't get up on my toes and kick. And, I, mm-hmm. and that was that was such a dagger for me because I was a kicker. Mm-hmm. I was always the kid who was out of shape. So I always just hung around as long as I could and then I'll kicked everyone. And it came all the way down. We both leaned at the line from 500 meters out. We kicked all the way in and he beat me by like a, like one hundredth of a second for the final spot to state. And then our team took third top two go we took third by two points that's so brutal so i missed on both and i i I spent like a half hour just wandering in the woods crying i have a question yeah that kid that beat you by hundreds of a second was he on one of the two teams that were in front of you no because if he was that would have been a two-point offset if you would have beat him they would have had one more you would have had one less and then the team would have went our four and five runners both gave up like two or three spots down the stretch like in the shoot Ugh. Um, but anyways, he, he, he was Mark Mitchell. He run on, he went on to run at, I believe Stevens point. Okay. Um, anyways, I just like wandered in the woods. Just like, I was just devastated. Like mm-hmm. I was so close to going to state, which is a big thing in high school. And, mm-hmm. and I knew I could have, but like the ankle, the ankle was the issue, but it was the, it was the tip of the iceberg. The real issue was that I was the least prepared kid there. Okay. And I shouldn't have needed the ankle to like, I I should have been able to run on one foot and get there because we had a weak sectional. Mm. And so anyways, I got done with that and I decided I was going to train. So all throughout that winter, I, I, I I had an awesome schedule because I was way ahead in my credits and everything. We had block classes, 90 minute classes. I took back to back study halls, first and second block and dropped them. So I had uh, three hours of no class to start my day. You didn't go to school until like 10 a.m. I'd go to school at six because my dad taught in the district. I'd go to school with him. He'd, I'd lift in the morning. Then I'd go out and I'd run three of the days, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. The other two days I'd shoot because it was during basketball. And then I'd go and I'd eat breakfast like in the commons. And then I'd play Mario Kart or watch movies in the science lab. Like that was my morning. 
<laughs> but point. for the first time ever, I ran in the offseason during basketball. So I was practicing every night for basketball mm-hmm. and then running three to four days a week and lifting three to four days a week. And I got to to my basketball finally started. And then I, I went from like 5'11", 135 to six foot 155 over that winter. And I was fast from basketball. And I came out mm-hmm. and I won the indoor mile that year and won the outdoor mile, outdoor two mile. Um, and, and, and I ran, I ended up running 426 that year. I'd run 452 the year before. Oh my God. That's a huge improvement. Yeah. I went from like 1024, two mile. I ran one, two miles a senior at conference. I doubled mile, two mile and that meet. I went 426, 952. Wow. Um, and then we went out in like 506 for the two mile and I just cranked her down the last two laps. So like I was starting to run semi quick for our division. And, um, and I realized, man, I might end up running in college. And then again, I got to sectionals. We, I, I ran the, the 3,200 meter relay, the mile and the two mile at sectionals, just cruised them all just to get through to section or at regionals, got to sectionals and coach was like, you just go all in on the mile. And if you feel good, double back in the two. But we had had a group of guys, we'd been to school for four years together and we wanted to run that four by 800 meter relay. So we decided I'd anchor that. It was either run it lead off or run hard and get extra rest or run anchor and just do what I had to do to survive. Yep. I ended up having to close in 58 to get to state. Oh, wow. And like 21 minutes later, the mile ran. Been and there. I was in the pack for three laps and I got spit out the back. Uh, so uh, Andrew Voss won that one. Oh, yeah. I know. He's, yeah, he was an Oshkosh guy. Yeah. So he and I had both run 426 that year and we were looking to like duel and get after it. And I like, spit out the back, jogged in at 441 and uh, scratched the two mile. So again, I ended my season on a huge disappointment and that kind of like, that ended up being like the theme of my life athletically. I'd fail (laughs) forward. I'd have a huge disappointment. But those motivate you ultimately, I assume, to go back and get it right. Yeah. And I was always the underworker. So it took like a big disappointment to like learn, access the next level of motivation to start practicing more. So I got a taste of it one winter of working. I went from 452 to 426. And that was like a three to four days a week running. I'm like, okay, all right. Like I kind of get it now. And I that 426 got me into college running. And so at that point I put baseball on hold and I shouldn't say the 426 got me to college running. Oh yeah. That was I, I weaseled my way into college running. 426 is good enough to get recruited by division three schools for sure. But I didn't. I didn't get recruited by anybody. With that mm-hmm. extra hour and a half I had after working out my senior year, I sent out 182 athletic resumes to any D1 and D2 school in the nation where I thought I could run. So I took a look at every D1 and D2 school's roster in the nation, looked at their previous year's milers results, and sent out an athletic resume to every coach who I could have made their team if I improved a little bit. So I sent out like 182 of those. Hustling. I got four and- letters back. And what those four letters of say? Of those four, I got two phone calls. Of those two, one person effort offered me a half scholarship. Which was? Campbell University. And where'd you go? Campbell University. <laughs> That's right, I, you did. I, I nailed my ACT. So between the the uh, the ACT scholarship and the, uh, the half running scholarship, I got my college pretty much paid for. So I went down there and, and ran. You know what I like about this, in, and this seems to start to be a theme, the more people we talk to on this podcast, and you're, you fall right in line. It's like, this isn't, like, nothing's laid out on a silver platter. Nobody's rolling out the red carpet. You're taking your lumps. You're coming back. It's, it's the failure and the constant banging your head against the wall that brings you back. It's the process. It's the staying hungry. Like, 
it's not, I mean, yes, you got to taste the success and that's what's, that's obviously was a catalyst as well, but like, this doesn't sound like a super smooth process. No, but it was what I, what I said, like, I always found a way I was always going to like use some trick or like finagle my way into some success. And I thought I'm going to do that with college. I'm, I'm going to have a college scholarship. And if I have to send out 182 letters, <laughs> like I'm going to get someone to say yes to me. Um, I want to jump on Campbell University in a second, but I also want to know what were you doing out? What were some of the things you were into, Brack, and like outside of your athletics when you were like in this high school phase? What were you doing? Not a thing. Nothing. No, I. You weren't smoking weed or out there getting hammered. You weren't doing any of that. To this day, I've still never smoked. And I did not drink a drop of alcohol in high school. So you were on the straight and narrow. You were, I mean, you were, you were focused on something athletic. Yeah. I didn't have much desire to. But I also, like every day after school, I went to practice every and I practiced hard. I was a, I was a competitor. I always practiced. Like I didn't work in the off season, but the moment the whistle blew, I, I worked as hard as anyone I'd ever seen. And I'd come home exhausted. I'd eat dinner. I'd do my homework and it'd be like nine o'clock and I'd mm-hmm. fall into bed and I'd wake up and start it over. And then weekends were competitions. And I, I know other people found ways around that. I just never, I just never did. I just decided and, and I didn't have an off season. Like mm-hmm. basketball started up right after cross and track and baseball actually overlapped. I had one day where I ran a four by eight, went and pitched three innings, came back and ran the two mile. Come on. Because it was at the same facility. Like oh, I, yeah. we overlapped for a week and a half or two weeks. Like I just didn't have time. I guess summer I could have. And I, by that point I'd gone three quarters of the year without it. And I didn't feel like it kind of became a pride thing. Like, no, I don't, I'm, I'm going to see if I can make it through high school without doing that. Yeah. And knowing you, you have such like a, like you're a very type A personality, at least on one end of your personality spectrum. Like you're a doer, you're like, I don't know, you you kind of put gusto into everything you do. I'm surprised like that just didn't catch up with you on like the party scene in high school or something where you, because I feel like you have the personality for it if you wanted to choose to go that way. Yeah. It almost, it kind of became like a, this, I'm I'm going to not intend, I'm going to, on purpose, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And, and luckily I had a couple friends who were, who were able, to, who wanted to do the same thing and none of us were like ostracized for it. It was just kind of known like, mm-hmm. yeah, they're, they're, they're not going to come. They're not going to drink with us, but they'll like come hang out and that's okay. And people uh, were yeah. kind of cool about it. That's great. Yeah. I was like one of those, like we had open campus lunch and stuff in high school. And like my, like the guy who gave me a ride was, would smoke weed every lunch hour. And then mm-hmm. we'd go here and I was just Kind of there, like they were, they respected the non participation. They yeah. got it. Yeah. Um, all right, dude. So you went to college, and I guess Campbell University didn't last very long, did it? No, it was a really strange situation. The coach down there was was just a, an odd man. <laughs> he really was. Is that it, why he chose you to start with? You think he was an odd man? <laughs> I think that he did not recruit at all. And if someone was going to do his job for him, that was one less item on his checklist to do. Mm. He he was a strange man, and um, we didn't get along. I I don't know. I was always a little too lighthearted for him, mm. and I also didn't have the performance to back up to my lightheartedness. I mean, uh, realistically, I was out of my depth. D one. I was I was not prepared, and he was not prepared to um, accommodate anyone. Everyone trained like a ten k runner. That's it. You all instantly bump up to 70 or 80 miles and you all run the same workouts. And when you get to track, if you're a faster guy, you'll run the mile and your speed will carry you through kind of thing. Right. And I, for the first time in my life, got a running injury. I had IT band issues, which were just debilitating. Mm. Like it's not a real injury, but it doesn't matter. I couldn't you can't walk, get away from it. I couldn't walk downstairs. 
Like I, I couldn't do anything. I rehabbed three, four times a day, every day for weeks and weeks and weeks. And it just didn't get better. And I eventually, uh, didn't run my, I didn't run track. I ran one indoor meet, uh, started the next one. Couldn't even get through my warm up, and that was it. And, uh, he's like, all right, well, we'll, we'll red shirt you. And I, during that time of rehabbing, I started lifting and I got down to 139 pounds that year. So I was six foot 139 after graduating six foot 155. Mm-hmm. And, um, by the time I got to the end of the year, I was like 160 and I, like my body was just craving calories and it was craving work. And so I ended up lifting like four days a week and I put on weight and I started uh, throwing a little bit. And by the time I got back home, I had a couple talks with my parents and just realized I'm not going back. So I emailed them, let them know, um, asked for athletic release. And I started training every day. I started hitting, throwing, fielding every day to get ready for, I was going to try back out for baseball. Oh man. Little did you know in this whole process too, you're kind of setting yourself up again for OCR success by running and lifting and all that stuff without yeah. knowing it. Yeah. And this, this is, this is when I changed as an athlete that summer. So I was working a manual labor job, which I loved. I loved it. And I was outside all day long working and I'd bike there and I'd bike back. It was 11 miles each way. And then I'd lift a couple days a week and every day I'd either hit, throw, or field. And my dad was great. He'd lift with me. Um, he'd pitch to me anytime we drive out to the field. He'd, he'd throw 200 balls and I'd hit, or he'd hit me 200 grounders and I'd field. Uh, he'd catch for me as I pitch. Like he just supported whatever I wanted to do. And then I just ran a lot of like 30 and 40 yard spurst sprints to get ready. So I was up to like over once I was like 175, 180 by the end of this and went to I went uh to our local our university at UW Whitewater and I tried out for baseball. Yeah. And uh, I got cut. <laughs> no. I thought I thought I had had a really good tryout. Um I was in I was taking a gym class uh exercise walking <laughs> with uh, <laughs> with the assistant coach. We got along great. He's like, "Hey, it's doing great." And when they made final cuts, I thought I was on the team and I wasn't. I went, I went to him like, what, what happened? He was like, well, you know, head coach has final say and you know, he's, there's some returning players he wants on. And in my mind, it was, I deserved to be on that team. And the coach mm. took me for one of his boys. And in reality, the assistant coach was probably being nice to me. You know, I, I don't know, but mm. he's like, I had a, a teammate of mine who's now the head coach at lacrosse. And I know they're looking for a middle infielder still. So at term, I transferred to UW lacrosse. Man, still pursuing baseball, still but, just. I, I didn't know anything different. Like my whole life was predicated around competition. Well, I'm just it, thinking like, man, you moved down to North Carolina. Yep. Then you come and you enroll in Whitewater in Wisconsin for another crack at athletics. That mm-hmm. doesn't go well. So then you transfer to another school. Now this is on your this is on your first year and a half of college. First year and semester. First. So this dude, all I'm hearing, man, is like how you're fucking wired. Like yeah. you are not like you're still just walking into walls here. And you know, well, I firmly shit. believed that I was like, I still believed I was going to like, ha- I knew like if I, if someone just lets me on, I'm going to do what I always do. I'm going to be put in this like backup role and then I'm going to find my way into the starting lineup and I'm never right. going to give it back. Because of talent, work and, ethic. And, and, oh. and I was a gamer. I all my entire life, I'm able to do things in competition that I can't in practice. Okay. Just needed the chance across the board. And, and I think pretty well on my feet, like I'm able to do the things that like you dream about doing in a competition. I can usually like pull it off 
in like, especially team sports, like moves and, and, and scenarios. Like I, I generally capitalize on those things that are in front of me. And, uh, and I just knew like, if I get in the starting lineup, like I'm not giving it back. I, so I, I still knew I was going to be a great baseball player. So I went up to lacrosse and I'm trying out. And again, I think I'm having a really good tryout. I took a, I was in line for, um, we're doing short hop drills where the coach is standing not too far away and he just hits a really hard short hop at you and you got to mm-hmm. knock it down. And then guy in front of me wasn't paying attention and the, uh, and I didn't have my glove on. I wasn't paying attention and he missed it. And the coach, the coach got under it a little bit and hit a line drive instead of a short hop. The kid wasn't paying attention and missed it. And it hit me right on my throwing hand on my thumb mm-hmm. and fractured a bone in my thumb. And I'm like, well, this is, this is not happening. So I, I got it taped. I didn't tell anyone. I went over, got it taped up and I just continued tryouts. But my throwing hand was taped up and that's your, I don't know. So swinging hurt, throwing hurt. And uh, maybe I wasn't good enough. Maybe I was limited, but I got cut there too. And this isn't the same, like you literally went through like a week's worth of trout at Whitewater. Then I went through a whole term there. Whole term. Okay. Then I transferred at term to lacrosse. Man. So now, twice now you didn't make the cut. Now where's your head at, man? Where are you? What, where's your head at? So this was the lowest point of my college. Um, I had started partying by this point. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you met Lisa somewhere around there, your wife? Not yet. No. Okay. So I'm at lacrosse now. I live in the baseball house with five other baseball players, and I'm not on the baseball team. Every mm-hmm. day they go to practice. Every day they come home. And I just started partying more and more. I started mm-hmm. drinking more. Um, lifted a little, I did like the college thing where I'd drink a bunch and then the next day go in and do like buy some tries and chest, <laughs> you know, like, were you going to get in fish bowls in lacrosse? No, I mean, I was, what was I 19? Too young for the bars. Yeah. Um, but it was just like, I was aimless. I played a lot of like pickup basketball and I didn't run a step, but I'd lift and I don't know. I, it was just, I spent that whole semester, like the rest of that term and then the next uh next part of it all the way through winter just like and then into spring like just doing nothing good with my life is that still the low point of your athletic career would you say that time period honestly I th- i'd say it's tied for right now oh yeah okay which i'm sure we'll get to yeah we'll get to that yeah so we got to spring and uh i was going crazy like restless I was I was trying to find things to occupy my time. Classes I wasn't taking anything challenging. I was I was just like aimless. One day I got done like lifting or playing basketball and I came home and I got in the shower and I'll never forget this. I got in the shower and I looked down and I'm like, what is that? And there was something below my belly button that had never been there before. Oh a, a gut. It was the start of a belly. <laughs> there was something there. And I had never seen anything there before in my life. And I turned the shower off. I toweled off as quickly as I could. I put on a pair of shorts, put on a pair of shoes, and I went out for a run. Okay. And it was so terrible. It was like 90 degrees out and humid and I hadn't run. And now it's going on like nine months or maybe even a year, probably a year without doing a a run run. And I just went out at probably like 640 pace, like casually down at Campbell, we'd probably run 610, 620 on most of our easy days. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason I was always hurt. (laughs) And I made it like five minutes at that. And I was just so hot and sweaty and terrible. It was just, it was a terrible run. And I got back home. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. 
but I will never, I cannot feel like this another day. And I just started running every day. And then I started hanging out with, uh, after school with the guys who were like the gray shirts in D3, their, their version of red shirting and started running with them. The guys who can't practice with the team, but are trying to stay in shape. And I started running with them and I found myself at parties at like two, three in the morning, like having to leave a party, but I'm underage and I'm drunk. What I started doing is I'd bring running clothes to a party in a little mini backpack and I'd get to the end of the night and I'd change into running clothes and I'd run home. Uh, I found yeah. like students who walk home in their going out clothes, get underage. Like it's obvious oh. you've been drinking. Mm-hmm. Someone running in short shorts or tights at two in the morning just looks like a weird exerciser. And so I just run home from every party and I'd found, I found out like it'd be three in the morning, I'd be drunk and I'd be just like grinning and flying. I just run in temple pace every time I ran, even if it was like a mile home or two miles home. And I was just enjoying it. I realized like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I got to get back to running. So I transferred again. Again. So you transferred back to Whitewater because that was the college I actually wanted to be at. I didn't want to go to lacrosse. I just wanted to play baseball. Uh, Okay. So I transferred back to Whitewater and uh, tried out for the team. That's your so- spring year, sophomore year? That would have been, I transferred back in uh, my sophomore year. I started my sp- fall sophomore term there and practiced with the guys in fall. And then in December, December 9th that year, uh, ran their alumni meet, which is your tryout for the team. Okay. And that is where we would maybe say your now day running career began. That, that, yeah. All of that laid the groundwork for now. I, I went through my putting on strength and muscle phase and I went through my aimless stage and I then I put in a fall of base building with the team and mm. I discovered I had foot speed for the first time in my life. All those 30 and 40 yards burst sprints and box jumps and plyo and lifting and 20 extra pounds of muscle. I, uh, I all out in a relay, I split 55.5 in a 400 in high school and I split 50.2 in my first relay in college. I just dropped five seconds in a 400 by putting on 20 pounds and and working on burst stuff. And I met Lisa and I met Lisa at that track meet, that first tryout. Oh, you did? Yeah. Everything's starting to align now, Bracken. Yeah. You're not walking into walls anymore. You're walking through doors. That's right. Doors started to open up then. Yeah. All right. So I want to spend just a little time in your college career and then I want to jump forward to to today and and things like that. So uh, college, you started running fast, man. Tell me about it. Uh, Moderately fast for D3. I... I ran 155 indoor that first year and made all conference um, and kind of petered out there. I still didn't have enough base. We did a ton of speed work at Whitewater and that was kind of it. And then that next year um, ran 154 and then the next year ran 153 and graduated never having made nationals. I always... You hit the marks though? Did you hit provisional marks for Nats? Uh, I'd usually hit Provo and it would be nowhere close. Um, really? What'd it uh, take to get in in the eight? That, in your 52.99, uh, 51.99 one year, or 52.5. Like it was always 52 mid or under. Okay, pretty quick. Uh, that's indoors as well? Uh, indoors was usually like 53 flat, 53 okay. one might get in. So I went as part of a, a DMR. I mean, first year, actually, I went as part of a DMR. I ran the 1200 leg and just shat the bed. The nationals was a really, really intimidating place for me. So anyone who's never run an indoor national meet, you are confined to the building during, during this. So like we did our warm up outside a little bit, but that day, I think it was like 10 below and it was sleeting or whatever. So like you were confined to the building and we were, every team was in a basketball court. That, That was it. 
And so it was mm-hmm. like, you could warm up in there. And I was totally thrown off. And then since I was leadoff leg, I was in that, like the corral area where mm-hmm. you have to have your spikes on and your jersey on and your warmups off like 15 minutes prior to your race. And then you're just standing there in this room covered, surrounded in sheets so that there's like no outside like, mm-hmm. noise getting in. And it's just like a, a holding pen and everyone's a stud there. And I was my first year running college track and I got out of that corral and you get one stride and then the race starts and I lined up in the wrong lane and they had to call everyone back and announce like whitewater <laughs> shift to lane four. And I ran a, the worst race of my college life. I just kept getting like bumped to the outside and spit out the back and every straightaway I'd try to like move back up. And by the time the last lap came, I had nothing left and I handed off in second to last. Was that how many matches do you have to burn in a race? It sounds like I burned all of them before the bell lap. And we had a bunch of studs. We had Brian Butzler running the mile. He'd run 406 or 404 that year. They brought us back to like fifth, and I got, I was an All American that year. (laughs) (laughs) The least deserving ever. Brian Butzler went to Oshkosh. He was part of my recruiting class as a freshman. We were in the same recruiting class. Yeah. So, anyways, that was my first nationals. My senior year, we went back and I earned it this time. I ran leadoff leg, handed off, tied for first. Um, we were on national record pace and we had a miler closing it out that hadn't run slower than 410 that year, but he had run a 152, 800, like 16 minutes before in prelims. And our coach had not filled in an alternate. And so he had to run it. Mm-hmm. When I handed off, I handed off, I looked over, he was sitting in the first row of the bleachers with his spikes, not on yet. It is head in his hands trying to recover. Oh my God. He went out in 61, like 62 and ended up running 436 and we took last. They're like, that was the end of my senior indoor year and outdoor. Um, I didn't make nationals. So again, like I had some success throughout the, 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 the time, but I ended on failure again, just like high school. That's usually how it ends for everybody, by the way, not very few people end on top. No, but I didn't accomplish any of my goals. I didn't even qualify for nationals my senior year as outdoor. So, uh, so that was it. Like in that I ended angry and I ended upset. And it's probably the reason I kept working out in that fall. I ran, I ran my first Spartan race. So like I transitioned right into it. Dang. Yeah. It seems like, uh, you keep fuel in the fire with like more, like I need to still like accomplish something I'm setting out for, like for real. Do you think that like you always would feel that way though? I don't know. Are you, are you like the guy that you're never going to be satisfied? I don't know. Probably. I always wonder the guys who like go undefeated for years. Could I do that mentally? Like, would I still have drive or is it because I've always been like the little dog in the fight? Is that why I have a drive? Mm-hmm. I've never known because I've never been like the greatest. I've never had an like just easy win after easy win. So I don't know what it would be like if I'd have drive or not. Okay. I just like hearing, man. I like hearing that you've been, you've taken, I mean, you've worked hard and you had some success along the way. Like we're, I'm not overlooking that. But like you still kind of just like still have like you're taking your lumps. Just like when we interviewed back, like we interviewed Hobie Call and Hobie Call gave up the whole dang dream because his marathon trials were a a catastrophe and Hunter McIntyre's doing drugs, probably laying in a ditch somewhere thinking like, what am I even doing myself right now? And you're still at this point where you're like, I'm still like, I've had these letdowns and you just keep like, that's a fuel in a a sense, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, I I left high school as a on a D1 scholarship and I graduated as a division three athlete who never qualified individually for nationals. So like I had success along the way, but like big picture, I hadn't accomplished what I'd want to accomplish. Yeah. Do you still feel like you have some things that you need to accomplish that like, do you of feel course. like? Yeah. yeah. I feel like I've never once in my life hit my ceiling. 
So you don't think winning so winning stadium series championships that's not enough for you? No, because it wasn't against it wasn't against the guys who are doing it now. Like when I was at my best in the sport, the sport hadn't peaked yet. And even well, when I was at my best, I still think I was training at about 70% of the level that the top guys were training. What would it take for you to, what would it take for you to be satisfied? It would take me being in my best shape for an entire season. And that's it. Then then you would just know I'm as good as I thought or it's over. You know, wanna, that is over. I want to jump into Spartan here in a sec. Um, knowing you as a friend and as an athlete, when we talk about the best fitness you've had, I believe it might have been maybe that 2014 or 2015 U.S. National or M- what are they, NBC series, we called it back then, where you were fighting for first and shoulder to shoulder with Cody Moat in some races. You were hitting podiums. Was that 2015? 14 2014? and 15 were my two best, probably. Yeah. Is that the best fitness you think you've had so far? Yeah. I'm trying to th- – now the years start to run together. The year after that, I was in better shape. Okay. I was um, curious. That, that I- was my most successful year, I think, in terms of the guy. Like you said, I I was running with Hobie and Cody in sprints and, and that kind of thing. I was making podiums. But the next year, the sport was bigger, and I was in better shape. I, that was my first year living in Colorado. Like I had been there for a year. And I'd started to figure out how to train at altitude. And and I was I was as fit as I've ever been in my life right there. Okay. Um, we're going to that in a sec. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. But you found a Spartan race after mm-hmm. college. And know what know what's hard know what's weird about the Spartan races, Bracken? Your first Spartan race. Know what I think the hardest obstacle is? What is the, that? The over, under, and through. Don't you? <laughs> I think that is a hard oh. obstacle. Man, what a tough one. Before I just sound like an idiot, can you can you tell the people why I just said that about the over, under, and through? I, I failed the over, under, through at my first race. <laughs> Bracken failed the over, under, and through at his first race, folks. Uh, so <laughs> there's no, it doesn't get much worse than that. Okay, continue. First of all, a guy I ran with in college, my best friend in college, he stood up in my wedding. He was at my, um, he was living with my parents for a few months when he first got his first business job in Milwaukee. Um, he moved in with them for a bit until he found his own place. And okay. Lisa and I... Um, were either engaged or married at that point. And we would come in and hang out with them on the weekends and uh, just give them crap. Because he he had run 150. He had been a conference champ. He had been All-American. He had, he had a chance to run with the Indiana Invaders. I don't know if you remember that. It was a semi-pro like farm team for guys trying to transition from college to pro running. And he turned it down to go in the business world. And I just thought, man, this is your last chance to pursue, to, to pursue something. You, you might as well go after it. You got your whole life to work. And he didn't do it, but I gave him a bunch of crap for it. And then he started like, you know, not looking like a runner anymore because he's living a normal life. And he was lean in college. And one day, Lisa and I engaged all afternoon. Like every time he like grabbed some food, we're like, you really, <laughs> I don't know, man. Like, Cobb, you're, you're starting to pack it on. Like, you've got to just start running again. This is, this is a bad look for just, you know, good naturedly, but giving them crap for for not running. And so we left, he went out for a run and a drunk driver hit him and knocked him unconscious for like eight minutes. He had like 30 some stitches. He broke his leg and tore his ACL. So that was still, we were just, uh, we were still dating at that point because that would have been my last year in college. He had graduated a year earlier. And, um, and so he had like a 13 month rehab (laughs) and throughout that time, like halfway through, he realized he needed a goal for rehab and he found a Spartan race and he signed up for it. And he was like, you got to go, you got to do it too. And I felt ungodly guilty, like so guilty that he had Mm -hmm. gone out for that run. 
because I'd goaded him into it. So I'm like, yeah, absolutely, I'll do it. But I knew he wouldn't do it. So I didn't sign up for it. Yeah. And like two weeks before, he's like, all right, you ready? I'm like, oh, man. So I went online and every wave was sold out except for the first and the last wave. And I don't want to wait around until like one. So I signed up for the first wave. Didn't know like that was an elite wave or anything like that. Uh, what year is this? 2011. Oh, back the All beginning. Wow. And uh, looked around the start line like, man, it's a bunch of crossfitters and soccer players. I'm going to smash these people. And like 200 meters in, 400 meters in, uh, we get to over under through. And I didn't know what it was. And everyone starts like going down to go under this thing. I'm like, look at these unathletic runners. <laughs> I heard them. <laughs> uh, at that time, it was just like a sawhorse that you went under one, over one, and then through. Um, <laughs> you hurdled the under. Hurdled the under. Okay. Like, I'm going to come out like 20 seconds ahead just because they're going to all crawl under this. <laughs> what are they? <laughs> the guy's like, no, no, no. Burpees, burpees. What do you, what, what is that? He's like, you, ha- you failed that obstacle. You have to do 30 burpees. I'm like, what is a burpee? Oh, come on. You knew what a freaking burpee was. I had never heard of a burpee in my life. You didn't like look up Spartan Race on anything and find, was there anything out there, I guess, even then? No, I doubt it. I'd yeah. like watch uh, uh, whatever they had had, but like there wasn't anything about that. So he like told me, I'm like, I'm not doing 30. I'll just redo the obstacle. He's like, you can't do that. I'm like, I'll redo it in 15. 10, 10, 15 burpees and redo. He's like, fine. So now you're negotiating. <laughs> yeah, I partnered down to 15 burpees, which destroyed me, my arms, <laughs> and redid the obstacle. And now I'm in last place. <laughs> and so I just like desperately just like hammering through these like woods and ravines and like off-road stuff I'd never done before. And it was awesome. <laughs> and it, it hooked me because I got smashed by this little guy. And I thought like, I got to come back and I, I've got to win one of these things. Where was this race? This was in Illinois in Marseilles. Is that like the Chicago race or something? It was, but it was, uh, it was an incredible venue. Okay. And who is this little guy that beat you? Call. Of course it was. Of course yeah. it was. So you, worked, so you worked your way all the way back up into what second. place? Yeah. Oh, you came all the way back to second. All right. You got to um, take it. And, and I was, I have never been that destroyed up until that point in my life in a race. It was like my body was unbelievably tired and i got an email after saying i qualified for their inaugural world championships in texas in december so this was september no this would have been like october or november i had like eight weeks until until the race and i'm like ten thousand dollars for an eight mile race in texas the, the guy who's the best i took one place behind him like i'm gonna train for eight weeks and i'm gonna smash this guy and get ten thousand dollars yeah so i did I just did nothing but compromised running. It was my first like introduction to that. I just did nothing but interval work or tempo work with constant compromised running in there. And I got out to Texas and I got smashed again. <laughs> I thought you took third place out there. No, I DNF'd. Oh. I was uh, Hobie and Josiah Middog. Uh, Josiah was a world champion Xterra triathlete at the time Spartan brought him into race Hobie and those two just went at it and they dropped me and me and Jung Young Pack went back and forth for eight miles and uh, for third place and I got to the Tyrolean Traverse which was literally 50 meters from the finish line you got done with that mm-hmm. you did the at the time it was the Traverse wall not the Z wall and you crossed the finish line and at the time in Spartan certain obstacles had were mandatory completion you had three attempts or you were disqualified from the race. And I failed the Tyrolean Traverse three straight times. Why? Uh, I, I had no grip strength. It was like 40 some degrees and raining. 
And I'd been mm-hmm. out there for over an hour. I'd never done anything like this. And I was so spent. I'd worked so hard that day. And I, the first time I was halfway across and Jung Young just finished it. And I, in my mind, like my race brain told me, okay, you cannot get across this and across the Z wall first, but the Z wall we had run on Sunday that year, the last wave of the day mm-hmm. to make everything really challenging. And it's because they thought people would stick around and the, Z, the traverse wall was covered in mud. And I thought he's going to fall off that. If I can save my grip now, get off this, do my burpees here faster than he does his burpees on traverse wall, I can get across traverse wall and maybe take third because there's no money for fourth. Right. So I dropped in the water. I like quick waited across and the guy's like, all right, you have two more attempts. I'm like, oh man. You thought it was burpee out. Oh. So I went back and now I didn't have the grip strength. I got like three quarters of the way across and my grip failed. I fell in. And then the third time I tried going over the top and I fell. And uh and I that was it. Like it, the whole crowd, everyone just stuck around to watch the race. It's all cheering for me. <laughs> and then I got the pity applause and Lisa just like walked uh. with me in the car and we drove back to the hotel. Did Jung Young Pack end up getting across the traverse wall on his first oh, yeah. attempt? Yeah. So it didn't matter. Nope. I mean, you went to podium. Nope. At least but, there's comfort in that. But again, it was like, that was the culmination of my year. I thought I was going to win a bunch of money and I had as bad of a failure as you could have. So like, I couldn't stop the sport. I had to come back and get redemption on that. Bracken, who is coaching you? Me. Who came up with your workouts? <laughs> Me. Where did you come up with these workouts? How is this where you're? Is this where you're? Because you're a fantastic coach, Breck, and, and and is this where it began for you? Programming your own training at this point. I got done with Illinois, and I just thought about all the terrible feelings I felt during the race, and thought about ways I could simulate that in a in a training run. And then I got done with with Texas, and I was like really really distraught over how bad I had done. And I'd wasted my own money. Like there was no pro team. I just flown down there with Lisa, like two air flight, two air tickets, hotel, rental car, and and I got nothing out of it. So I just I wrote down like everything that happened, went over every obstacle, wrote it all down, and then started designing workouts that would get me better at those specific things. And that's when it started. Like Bigfoot, that workout, uh, um, KDE, um, I got all those that started that summer. Pretty simple, right? Like take. I mean, really, when you just dumb it down, like take what the race requires of you and then find ways to train it effectively. Like it makes sense. Yeah. And you, but you were innovative in that sense at the time because not many people were doing this. Maybe Hobie Call, but you yeah. didn't even know what he was doing at this Hobie time. Hobie and Jung Young definitely were. I'm yeah. sure a bunch of guys, Alec Blennis was around, Elliot McGuire. I'm sure they were all doing mm-hmm. it, but like social media wasn't what it is. And we didn't know each other really. And yeah, we were just learning on the fly. So you're going on nine years of uh, OCR specific compromised work, uh, almost almost a decade, man. It's crazy, isn't it? You're getting old. Yeah, getting old balls. Um, so let's uh, so let's jump. So so with the Spartan thing, obviously that's when you got your hook, and that's where the the modern day Bracken Cracker that you all know that was uh, where it spawned is that yeah. season. So that that beat down there spurred me on. So starting that next March, I went from March through September on one big build towards the Killington World Championships. I okay. researched the course, the elevation, the obstacles. I watched everything I could watch. I, I scripted out like a 26-week training plan and I followed it to the T. I thought, based on this, based on what I think I can do, I think I can finish this course if I nail everything in three hours. So I scripted everything around having the best possible ability to quote unquote red line for three hours. Yeah. So I did 
beast workouts. I did everything I could do to simulate this, uh, scripted out my, the minimum water and calories I could carry and take in for three hours worth of work. I tested it out all summer, all fall. And I went out there, um, and nailed the race, um, and took third. Cody showed yeah. up. We didn't know who Cody was. Cody won, beat mm -hmm. Hobie. Hobie took second. I finished like nine minutes behind them. Um, and it took two fifty nine. So like <laughs> <laughs> you nailed it. I nailed it. Who and, were, who else was uh, in the fight with you that race? Uh, Anybody that we would know? There's a guy named Ben Nephew. He was a professional mountain runner for Innovate. Uh, there's a guy named Sebastian Monet. He was Canada's best racer at the time. Marco Bedard. He was Canada's ever, other best racer. He had won the year before. Um, Jung Young was there. Uh, Lee Earl Rugland was yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Alex He's Lennon. Uh, Magida. Um, okay. There were a bunch of, there's a guy named, I think Mark Husted was at that. He was a 147, 800 guy and like a 359 miler. Um, there, there were some people, but it, it didn't have the depth. But um, And then that was the day I continued on and did the ultra as well to get an extra grand. You know, I would have rather... I would have rather made my first uh, world podium at Killington. That speaks more volumes in Texas. Yeah, and that that was that was to this day is one of the best race experiences I've ever had. I, a twenty six week prep for it, everything happened the way I expected it to happen, or the way I thought it could happen. Um, I told myself if one or two people break, I go with them. If more than that break, I go with the pack, no matter what mm -hmm. happens. And we had a pack of six all running for third place, and we just whittled it down to two by mile 12. And then I broke away up the last climb and on the last descent and like coming down, I like tears in my eyes. Like I had put together three hours of work and I'd done it. And there was uh, two spear throws in that race, one halfway through and one at the finish line. And when I ran up to that last one, I was just like, there is no doubt about this. I'm going to hit this and get my money. And it was, it was just perfect. You crushed those losers. <laughs> I, I executed my training is what i did and it was it was it was one of the most satisfying races i've ever had would that be the first true pinnacle you hit in ocr when you hit that cross that finish line you were like hell yes like yep. i finally did something yep and it was the first time i'd ever run a mountain in my life i it was coming down the first descent i was in third i i was in good climbing shape i'd spent all summer running up ski hills yep. and but i'd always used the down as recovery and i mm -hmm. was going down thinking like this is as fast as you could safely run down this thing. Like I'm fine. I look behind me. There's no one in sight. And like a minute later, a herd blew past me. I'm like, Oh no. <laughs> for this. And so like, I learned how to run downhill that day. It was just a lot of awesome things happen. You should tell people real quick, just a quick blip on what happened when you've crossed the finish line that day. <laughs> uh, I crossed the finish line and I was doing my post-race interview and uh, I had a beer, had a banana in my hand. And then the guy was like, you looked really good crossing the line. You look like you could have continued on. Now that day, the Beast and Ultra Beast championship started at the same time. So Cody continued on and he won both. And you could double Crazy. dip prize money. And I'm like, well, you know, maybe I could have, but I didn't train for it and I didn't sign up for it. I didn't pay for it. So like, and they had been very clear, like you have to choose before the start, which ones you're doing. And the guy's like, you can do it. I'm like, nah, I didn't sign up. He's like, no, I'm the race director. You can do it. It was uh, Michael Morris, Mike Morris. <laughs> yeah. like, uh, uh, like I'm kind of caught in my own confidence here. All right, I'll do it. So I, uh, but I needed an armband. They didn't have, I didn't have an ultra beast armband and Alec Blennis had been part of a group that got lost on the ultra beast. So he's like, I'll give you my armband, man. So I took that and I took off up the hill. Like I'm going to go get two grand more. And I made it 400 meters up that hill and the wheels fell off. Like basically <laughs> as I got out of sight from the crowd, the wheels just fell off. 
because I had taken in the minimal water and calories mm-hmm. I could three hours of racing and I hadn't refilled anything. Alec had offered me his pack. I'm like, ah, it'll probably chafe. I don't want it. I'm good. And I realized first lap took me three hours. I'm minimum four hours on this one and I don't have water or calories. And it was the longest suffer fest of my life. You made it. You finished. I did. What did you finish in, in that ultra? Uh, I took third. So you podiumed in the ultra behind Cody? Second behind Cody. And I knew I wouldn't catch him. But I just told myself, as soon as whoever third place catches me and bumps me to third, I'll just drop out. And eventually, Jung Young Pack caught me and moved past. And he was moving well. Um, and I was like, wow, oh, but I'm still, I'll still get 1,000 if I finish. As soon as, as soon as someone bumps me out of third, I'll quit. Then I'll quit. And that just like kept me going. Like, I'll just, I'm, I'm not finishing this race. I'll just go until I get caught. And mm-hmm. finally, I got to like mile nine. I'm like, F this. <laughs> That's my money. I've been out here for like six hours. I am, I am taking third place. And yeah, I finally finished up, took third, and Spartan stiffed me on that prize money. They never paid you? Oh nope. man, I hate to hear that. Yeah, you-, yep, you can double dip. Yeah, that's absolutely it. It was supposed to be two thousand for one race, two thousand for the other, and they they cut me a check for two thousand total and never paid me. I was out man. there for like seven hours and forty minutes. <laughs> the last second lap took me four forty. <laughs> With no fuel, no water. Uh, halfway <laughs> through, I was going delirious. My vision was going. I could. I was hearing like I was underwater, uh, and uh, you couldn't receive help. But another racer gave me a power bar, and then I, I ate it and like two gulps and like my vision cleared and I asked him for another one and he gave it to me and and my life changed like every bite I felt like a video game like my energy recharging it was bizarre I was so low and depleted that like I took anything I was drinking out of the lake I found a I found a water bottle in the barbed wire crawl they had nothing but purple foam left in it and I took it and I filled it up out of the hose that they were spraying on us in the barbed wire I shook it up and drank it like I was I was licking people's uh, goo wrappers they had left on course. <laughs> I was sur- I was surviving. What an epic day though, huh? You do it all over again. Um, all right, and something I, I meant to ask it and and I didn't uh, yet is you were working at this time, right? You weren't yeah. a professional athlete, right? What were you doing through all this? Because you were training full time, obviously, but you were also working full time, right? Yeah, I was a high school special ed teacher and a coach. Yeah, you did that for a few years, right? Yeah, four or what, five years. Not to completely sidetrack where we're headed with this, but why, uh, why, why teaching? Why special ed? What was, uh, I don't know. What was your passion there? How'd that play out? My mom and dad were both teachers. Kind of grew up in that, that environment. I really liked that my dad was able to spend all summer with us. Um, growing up, he was always outside with us. Like you'd be working on projects, but anytime like, Hey, will you play catch with us? Will you shoot around with us? Will you go fishing with Mm -hmm. us? He always could. And I really liked that. And I wanted to, I knew I was going to be a dad. Uh, eventually. And I knew that I wanted to be an active dad. And so that, that struck a chord with me. And then growing up across the street from me, um, a boy two years older than me, I had uh, down syndrome. His name was Tyler and we just grew up together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when we were young, we were like the same. And then as I grew, he, he remained and I grew past him and we went from like playmates to like buddies to like, kind of like, mentor caretaker role like i mm-hmm. in the summer i'd help him uh when he had to start going to high school i worked with him on how to get to the bus like we did a couple times a week we'd work on like flashcards and reading and things like that and just worked with him growing up um and it was just like part of my life i didn't know like what really was happening but by the time i got to high school i realized like i'm probably going to be a teacher and i think i want to be a special ed teacher 
Mm. And then in high school, we had this program. It was called Irving Swim. Uh, There's this Irving Elementary in middle school um, where uh, it was a special ed school or they had a big special ed program. And a couple high schoolers would have this adapted FIAD class where we'd they'd bust the kids over and we'd uh, we did a swim class with them where we'd help them like change, help them swim. Yeah. Uh, and, and we, it was like, looking back, I don't know how legal it was. Like we were changing their diapers and like showering them. And we were talking about it the other week. Like it was kind of weird. Like I think that the teachers, the one teacher there totally just took advantage of us and the stuff that he was supposed to be doing, he pawned off on us. Mm. So it's kind of sketchy, but like it, it cemented the fact that I wanted to be a special ed teacher. That's fantastic. How long did you teach for before you left? Four or five years. Okay. And you taught uh, special ed at what age level? Uh, high school, high school special ed. What yeah. kind of? I, I'm just. This is a personal curiosity. What kind of skills are you are you teaching high school level special ed kids? Uh, well, I mean, there's there's basically three types of special education. There's emotional behavior disorders. There's learning disability, and then there's cognitive disability. Okay. Um, and so, with learning disabilities, you're basically just teaching coping skills so that they can live their life in the normal world. So like your boss is going to expect you to do this. You have to be able to do this. Like they're, they're normal cognitively. They just have a learning disability. And so you're just providing accommodations and things like that. Um, With emotional behavior, you're teaching Mm -hmm. emotional coping skills and just ensuring that you don't blow up and ruin your own chances in society. Like you can't be your Mm -hmm. own worst enemy. And then with cognitive disabilities, that's anything from autism to uh, down syndrome, cerebral palsy, things like that. Um, And it's, it's basically the life skills protocol. So like whatever your capability is now we're trying to raise all your skills up to that capability and then push it, push it a step farther. So um, that I I had a cognitive disability special specialty with a cross categorical license. So it worked with all, but that was my specialty. Okay. Was that satisfying work? Yeah, I really liked it. And especially the first school I taught at, I had like carte blanche. I could do whatever I wanted. And so we did really, really different things like our um i wanted to build some um some spartan walls and training stuff so like i i put them into my truck <laughs> like we we i took four of our students for, for our math class um in science and life skills class and we got into my suv and we drove to the lumber store and i had them go measure out all the wood and price different things out by the square foot and then we bought it and then we came back and went to the high school's wood shop and now they had to make the measurements and taught them how to use a bandsaw and a circular saw and um, safety glasses and how to use a guard on a table saw and we cut it all and then taught them how to use a, a screw gun and, and and a nailer and and when we did that stuff and then we assembled it and then we did fight on it you know That's so like fantastic. I was able to do real like we we took over the sh- the grocery shopping for the for the foods in the the baking classes. So a couple times a week, I'd I'd uh, take the the school suburban, load my kids up, and we go to the grocery store. And they'd have to they'd each have a list. They'd have to shop. So I was able to do outside the box stuff like that, and that was a ton of fun. Yeah, if that's if that's not real world applicable, I don't know what is, man. Yeah. And now and we were in a cool small community where the school uh, superintendent was an ex special educator, and the, it was a small community, so the parents were on board, and they're basically like, we're gonna throw away a lot of the academic criteria, and we just want them prepared for life. So it wasn't like I was doing paperwork and grading; we were doing projects and hands on in the community stuff. That's awesome. So you did that for you said four years, I did that for three years, and I transferred to. Um, to Milwaukee um, and taught at a different school for one year and then left. Okay. Left, left. And, then, and then you left that to become a pro athlete and coach. Kind of. Yeah. I, that next school I had, 
I had started to burn out. Um, it was an unhealthy district um, at the time. Poor leadership, um, weird hierarchy, and I was I was starting to run into a little bit of <laughs> uh, issues with the um, with the powers that be, mm-hmm. and I was not able to do the things I felt were necessary for the students that needed it. And instead of towing the line, I did the things I felt were necessary. Started to have some meetings I shouldn't be in <laughs> and that kind of stuff. And, and I was bringing work home with me. I was starting to be a, a worse husband and a worse parent. It was just, it was an unhealthy job position for me at the time. And it made it real easy for Lisa to say, Hey, I think you should do OCR full time. Hey, do you get your wife's permission there? You got to go with that. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like OCR was a hobby. It was a passion. And so I left all career decisions to her. She's the one who said, mm-hmm. I think you should go full time. And she's the one who said, I think it's time we move out to Colorado and start training in the mountains and at altitude. So wow. I wasn't going to make those decisions, but when she said yes, like I was going to run with it. You're as strong as the woman standing next to you, as they say. What uh, what year was that? Oh, man, that would have been probably 2014. So 2014, it was uh, you went from Bracken, multi-dimensional, still career oriented and trying to make the Spartan thing work to I am going all in. Yeah. 2014, this is my life. Year before in 2013, I'd made like 20 or $30,000 in prize money and started having some sponsors contact me. And I thought like moving out to Colorado, moving to altitude, training in the mountains, taking this seriously, like I can double that. Like uh-huh. that's more than I make. It's a, like I was only making like 40,000 as a teacher. Like I, I can replace that. No problem. So it was, a, I thought this is a stress-free move. Let's do this. Uh-huh. What year was the first year you were on the protein? uh 2012 2013 2013 okay i i actually decided to stop spartan racing after that killington world championship it was cool i loved it i had nailed the prep like it had come full circle i'd put all this work i took third at world championship and i got two thousand dollars for 26 weeks of work and i spent my own money to get there and i thought like it's cool but it's not like it's not paying the bills it's not that cool <laughs> so yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I'll find something else. So I, I bought a bike uh got a membership to a y and started training for a tri- uh, iron man okay still training did you ever do one no, i got seven weeks into that or nine weeks and robert colbo called me he's like hey it's robert you remember me i'm like hey robert how's it going he's like we're doing this this we're putting together this pro team I'm like what does that mean he's like well like we'll, we'll like fly you play i'm like i'm in <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So i i uh quit cycling and swimming and I got back to training for OCR. So let's fast forward then. Um, cause I want to get to a couple things here. Um, when did you decide to start coaching and how did that happen? Well, I've been coaching at the high school when I was in college, I went back, I was coaching, um, cross country at my high school. So I'd, I'd started coaching already in college. I, I wrote my own training my senior year cause I was student oh. teaching and I, um, couldn't practice with the team. And I, we had a guy took over the head program who had been a hurdler and I didn't trust that he knew how to, he decided he was gonna, our previous head coach had been the middle distance coach. And so he decided he'd fill both roles and I didn't trust his training. So since I wasn't training with the team anyways, I just did my own stuff and I loved it. <laughs> I just yeah, like yeah, yeah. out on it. And I knew, I always knew I'd coach. I liked teaching. I liked coaching. I liked doing that. And I realized I love writing workouts. So it started then. I was coaching high school, coaching myself, and then coaching myself in OCR, and then just my buddies around me who wanted training plans. And finally, this guy like messaged me. He's like, hey, I'd love to, for you to write me a training plan. I was like, eh, yeah, sure, I could do it. He's like, I'll give you like $500 for a, a six-month training plan. Wait, like people pay for this stuff? 
And that was it. I just was like, okay, I love doing this and I'm not making what I thought I'd be making racing. So let's, let's see if we can't start transitioning to making this a job. Uh huh. When was that? That was probably right around that time, 2014. Okay. And then it be uh, slowly but surely has blossomed into uh, what it has today, we'll say. Yeah, it was word of mouth for a long time because I was just like writing stuff and emailing it out and using like Microsoft Word and building like a table in there. And like it, uh-huh. it was taking a long time to write stuff. So I just, someone's like, hey, I know Mike and he said, you should try this. I'd be like, all right, we can try it for a little bit. And then eventually, uh, yeah, partnered with some people, started a coaching company, worked well for a while. Uh, burned up in flames towards the end and then started uh-huh. doing my own thing individually. That's how I found out about you word of mouth. I uh, ran my, my second Spartan race was the Minnesota Spartan race in 2016. Um, I took fifth there, did a set of burpees, but three of the guys in front of me were coaching with you. Yeah. I remember and I was that. like, I was like that, that, that race murdered me. I never run up a hill in Mike, my life. Ian and Garrett? I, I did beat Ian. I, I, I think I actually beat Ian that race cause he started cramping, but okay. it was Patras was in that race. Who else? Somebody else. Any old Lee Earl Ruglin, but I know Mike Ferguson and Garrett Toll. Anyways, and so that's how I found out about you. And they had the they had in black magic marker. They had Apex Training or something written oh, on there. Right. It was yeah. just in black. It was so podunk. Yeah. It was just written on their chest in magic marker. And I was like, eh, well, two guys that beat me had that shit written on them. I should probably ask what that is. That's funny. Um, yeah, that's where it started. Um, so let's uh, let's kind of. I want to look at your your career, man. Um, and for those of you, I know a lot of listeners probably, you know, you guys have picked this up after we're going to call Bracken's heyday. And I'm going to call something right now. And I'm going to say that Bracken is going to have a second round of uh, what we'll call a heyday coming up. I think you, your best is yet to come. We talk a lot, man. And I know as soon as we get healthy and consistent, like, I think you're going to be uh, beyond the Bracken of old beyond the 2015, 14 bracket. And that's honestly, if I had to bet my bank account, I would bet on that versus the opposite. So you have, I have. Nice of you to say. Well, the reason I'm saying that is I think a lot of listeners haven't seen you at your best because they've entered the sport in the last two years and you've dealt with injury and, you know, you were on constant podium threat in all the national series races. You were winning every stadium race you would run and blah, blah, blah. You know, all those stupid accolades, you know, all those wins and stuff. Um, Bracken's the man, guys, and he's fast as shit. And I think it's going to come around full circle. But I want to um, I want to just dive into um, some of your highlights as an athlete in the Spartan world, um, because uh, most of our listeners are in the Spartan scene. So if you had to highlight some of your most your proudest moments in the sport in your career, now we're talking what an eight or nine year career. um, What would be one or two that really stand out to you? that really make you proud? Uh, Killington's still probably my most proud moment. Um, in terms of pure performance, that next year, 2013, was kind of cool. They had uh, they put a super sprint and beast championship on. And mm-hmm. they did the super, then the sprint, and then it culminated at the Killington World Championship. And I won the super, beat, awesome. Hunt, beat Hunter head-to-head, no burpees. I just ran away from him and then uh, beat him again, took second to Hobie in the sprint. And, uh, like that stretch of racing, I was, I was locked in mentally and physically. Um, Mm -hmm. and then 2014, I had a stretch as well, but I don't know, like I, I look back, I don't have a ton of races that I like stand out as I'm super proud of because it's always like the what ifs I feel races I won. I felt like had watered down competition or it wasn't what it is now. And the races I didn't 
like took second or third or fourth, I always felt like, man, I wonder if I could have pulled that off. Yeah, but you can't compare then to now because you didn't, I mean, watered down competition compared to now, sure. And in five years, we're going to look back on 2020 and say, oh, the competition's even better in 2025 than it was in 2020. That's going to be a given in our sport, I think. That's you know? true. But at the same time, looking back and saying like my greatest success came against the guys who are now beating, I mean, against guys who weren't in the sport and now the guys who are in the recent years have handled me. So now it's it's always hard to look back and say like, man, I'm so proud of that because I was proud in the moment, but it's hard not to look back and wonder like, am I better now than I was then? And I was just facing inferior people or was I a monster then? And I don't have that monster fitness now. It's always that second guessing game of when your mm -hmm. recent races aren't your best, what are you really most proud of? What is, what is the last race that you've completed that you are True, that proud of that you can say that was my last pinnacle in, in all honesty the, the the last race i'm i'm super proud of the result was the city field stadium race um that was, that was last year early last it was, year it was the it? year before um okay. i won the series that year everyone showed up to that and we kind of talked like whoever wins this like might just be the best short course guy and i won that one who is there uh hunter kempson isaiah kent um I'm blanking on who else, but it was, you beat it was, them pretty handily. Some of those guys, you crushed most of them. Kempson and I came down to the wire. We were on box jumps. He got there one rep before me. I left one rep ahead of him. I bet you ran a 60 second last quarter there. I was flying. It was amazing watching you run that infield there. So it was, <laughs> awesome. It was but, so awesome. But even that, I wasn't in in great fitness for. I was really really tough mentally at the time. I had like I had done a bunch of kill myself workouts leading up to it because I knew I didn't have the fitness. So I got, I got gritty tough. But the last time I am like proud of my fitness and my race was, was the Montana sprint in like 2016, I think. Okay. That was, that was when I was in my best shape. And ever since then, everything has kind of always compared to that training block. And I haven't had anything remotely similar to that. Is that a race where you were chasing down Cody Moat and you were in the top three there for a while? That was the next year. Uh, this okay. was Killian Atkins. Um, Killian and Atkins were leading out. Kent, Trammell, Glenn, Novakovich. Um, Wasn't, uh, what's his fa um What the heck is his name? Yatskow there? I don't know if he was there for this one or not. Okay. But I went into that one and I had a chat with Lisa the week of. I said, you know what? I know this is a stacked field and like, I know there's some studs here, but I just can't see three people all beating me on the same day. Like mm -hmm. if two people could put a race together and are better than me. Sure. But I can't see missing a podium. That just, I'm in too good a fitness. I'm too dialed in mentally. I just don't think three people can all do it at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I took second there. Um, and I just knew like, I'm going to make this, like I, I might win this race. And I, and I, I came close to winning it. Uh, Atkins, pulled away from me on, on the bucket carry right at the end. But like, I, I just knew, I don't care who in the world shows up. Like I'm, I'll fight you all. And that's, uh -huh. that was the last time I've ever felt like that. What do you think it would take? And, and guys, um, again, for those who don't know Bracken, I would like to rattle off a couple of stats. I uh, contacted Jack Bauer about you, mostly, honestly, to just get shit to make fun of you for, if I'm being honest. <laughs> I, said, I said, how can I embarrass Bracken? I appreciate uh, that. <laughs> yeah, that's what that's what friends do. That's love right there. Um, and by the way, uh, Bauer and Yancey, uh, Yancey Culp, I said I'd shout this out. They have their uh, goat challenge going on, the greatest of all time. It's like a uh, bracket style uh, 
tournament. Go look at their pages and check it out. Bracken is one of the people in this uh, GOAT challenge. But uh, so, um, you know, all time, folks, Bracken has the fifth most podiums of all time. All time. And that's not counting a lot of podiums in recent years due to injury and not racing as much. So fifth all time still in podiums. And you're, that's amongst all the greats. The Killians, the Isaiahs, you know, Kent who raced a ton, uh, Kempsons who's raced a ton anyways. You're fifth all time. Did you know that? I did not. Um, do you know that you have podiumed Bracken in 20 different states? <laughs> do you know that? No. Uh, one person has done better than you, and that's Kent. He has uh, in 21 different states. He is, uh. he is podium. Um, you and Killian are the only two in our sport to have podiumed in all race types uh, and major series. If uh, major series races, I don't know if you knew that either. Just you and Killian. What, what does that include? Um, I think it's everything from stadium sprint, super beast, ultra. Um, I believe. I didn't get asked too many questions. Just you and Killian. Yeah. You're also one of two people, you and Angel Quintero, who have podiumed in, uh, I think VJ this year has now too, but in Mexico and the U S. So this dude is legit. I think you have 50 who, I think you're 55 all time podiums, which is nuts. 55 podiums. How many times do you think you've raced? You know, probably 70, 80 races, 70 races. Maybe I probably missed 15 in my life. And you're running big series races. Bracken, of course, you cherry-picked for a while and ran some small races in between the big ones, but you didn't shy away from big competition. So it's not like you were podium in, in all little races. Living in the Midwest is great. <laughs> you go yeah, all yeah. Like, doing your local races is cherry-picking because no one travels uh, to the Midwest. Yeah, it's kind of true. We don't have many races here, though, either. We used to. We used to have more. Yeah. Um, and you know what? I mean, you're how old? 31? 32. 32. You're not even, I mean, you're just hitting your prime, dude. Yeah. You got time. If you want to stay with this, there's no doubt in my mind that you're going to be another 50 on the list. Um, and you're two and four against me, which, you know, really says how. I'm two and four, or I'm four and two. You're, you're four and two against oh, me, which God. really speaks to your, your <laughs> oh. racing prowess. A lot of those came in my early years, I must say. That's true. So I, I'd like to go head to head with you a few more times. That would be fun. Um, I did hear, though, that you once lost to a man who took a shit in the middle of a race. I did hear that. It wasn't a race. It was like a CrossFit um, competition. Uh-huh. So you lost to a guy who had time to take a shit, and he still came back and beat you. True. Um, which I guess uh, you are you are 10 and 5 all time against Lindsay Webster. She's beaten you 5 out of 15 races. You have a 79. You have a 70, as far as time goes, you have a 79% win percentage against Lindsay Webster, uh, but I should have just dropped out of those races where I got <laughs> it in, but I want to help make you feel better. I have a 78% win, <laughs> win ratio against Lindsay Webster. Now I will say most of those came in my early years. See, this is the thing. Like right? when you say, what are you most proud of? Like, am I a poor <laughs> racer? If I'm, you are, if I'm losing me. to a woman. <laughs> Oh, and I wanted to say you're also 0-16 against Cole. Just I thought I should let you know. Yeah, I've never beat Cole. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I also wanted to let you know that I've beaten Chris Brown four times, and you've beaten him zero. So just wanted to let you know that, too, for what it's worth. Am I 0-1 against him? I, th- I think so at the ultra. At, <laughs> at, uh, at Spartan Worlds, yeah. Uh, um, just wanted to sneak those in there. But uh yeah, it's, uh, I got more, but they, they seem a little more irrelevant now. Thanks, Jack, for providing those stats for yeah, thanks, us. Thanks, Jack. Um, Jackass. Uh, so, Bracken, what's uh, what's what's next for you, man? What do you? I, I'm not I'm not just saying this if I didn't believe the fact that like if you 
get fit and stay healthy, you're going to crush. And I believe that there's enough time this year to do it. What are your goals for this season? What are you hoping to accomplish personally? I know you have to get healthy and all that factors in. Well, but You asked me earlier, what was the lowest point of my athletic career? And I said yep. that point where I was out of work in college, drinking, gaining weight. Mm-hmm. And I said it was tied for this. And that's that's not hyperbole. This has been the hardest mental stretch of my entire athletic life. Um, okay. I've been so healthy my entire life. And now I've had a string of just stupid little issues that just keep adding up. And it, it is an excuse. And I don't like doing this. But I, I think it's important to talk about because I'm not the only person out there who struggles with consistency in training. I'm one of them too. And, and, and I know a lot of our listeners do because they message us about it. But I, I just haven't had consistent training. By consistent, I mean like more than more than five days in a week for more than like a month straight. Can you just really quick, I want to interrupt because I want you to just list off. Um, we're not going into excuse corner. That's not the point of this, but I think it's helpful for people to understand like trials and tribulations are freaking normal and stuff pops up. What are all the things you've dealt with in the last year or two? I'm a good lesson to learn how to not, how, how, how you shouldn't address things once you get hurt. So that Montana race I talked about where I felt bulletproof, I kicked a rock in the first mile and broke my big toe and knew it immediately. And I tried to rush back for the next series race. And I took two weeks off of running. And then I came back to rate to running like every third day. And I just kept rehearsing it. And I ran that next race and reheard it. And so I struggled with a broken toe for nine weeks. Yep. And then I developed Achilles issues from compensating the toe. And then I developed SI issues from compensating the Achilles and then the knee. And then I rolled an ankle um, badly right before the morning or the evening before a race, I rolled it badly, couldn't race, tried to rush it back, reheard it in the next race. Then I pulled a hamstring for the first time in my life playing a basketball tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I dealt with that for a while. And then I've had a torn meniscus for the past year and a half that I finally just got surgery on. Yeah. And, and so it's just been like one thing after another. And yeah, that's excuse city right now, but like that's real life. And I've tried to train through everything and I can I can with 100% positivity, is positivity with 100% truth tell you that had I just gone back to the broken toe and taken six weeks off, I wouldn't have dealt with anything up until the meniscus. All of it was resulting of one toe. And if I could just impart one thing, it would be like, take the hit now. Because like Daniel Cormier, he's a great announcer and a great fighter in the UFC. He always... He and Dominic Cruz always say, you can pay now or you can pay later, but you're going to pay. And they talk about it with getting up off the ground when you get taken down. Like you can take a shot or two and spend the energy to get up right now, or you can get beaten down for the entire round and then the next round and the next round because you didn't spend it early. You get you can pay now or you can pay later, but either way, the bill comes due. Yep. And if I could tell the listeners anything, it would be pay now. Pay now. Pay now rather than pay interest for years and years and years. And that's what I'm dealing with. And this surgery has been a really hard thing mentally for me. I was supposed to be back running in three to four weeks, and I couldn't run more than two or three days in a week through week seven. And my other knee in this, and Kirk, we haven't talked about this, but I'm going to need surgery on my right knee now. Well, um, man, I've why? stabilized my left. I've realized I have a tear in my right meniscus, but it wasn't as bad as the left and it o- was overshadowed by it. And right now it's telling me all the same things that my left knee told me in fall. 
So mm. I've now like been struggling with when do I do it? And it's just hit me like pay now get it done right now because every week I delay cuts into the next season. So what, what is my goal for this year? My yeah. goal is to get this second surgery done and oh. go through all of the rehab again and keep this insane level of frustration burning. All mm-hmm. this indoor work I'm doing is treadmill and the spin bike and the Stairmaster. All I do is watch old races and mm-hmm. this is burning me up inside the fact that I can't do the things that I want to do right now. And it kills me to see people that I have beaten my entire career having success. I'm happy for them because I'm friends with all of them now, most of Mm -hmm. them, but it kills me that I can't go out and do what I believe like is my rightful place in the sport to do. Mm -hmm. So 2020 is basically just a wash at this point. I don't care. I don't get back because I'm going to get back when I'm healthy and I'm just want to get to the point where I can train every single day. And once that happens, then I hit my training metrics and that I want. And then I come back and find out where I stand in the sport. Yeah, there's uh, I say the biggest the biggest talent an athlete can have is the talent of staying injury free. Mm-hmm. Some people, you know, fortunately are freaks who never get injured in quotes, which I don't understand. Those people uh, have a talent that most of us don't possess. And so I agree with you there. And based on what you had said, and I say this all the time, like two or three days or two or three weeks off now, if you're, if you're babying, something is better than two or three months or years of compromised training later. And I think a lot of people learn that lesson hard. And so I think it's very relatable that that's something you've dealt with because you had a, I mean, you never really dealt with chronic injury until three years ago. And it was a blessing and a curse. I was so healthy, but I didn't know how to deal with setbacks. I um, I feel for you, man. And I, I couldn't agree more that it's, it is better to take your lump sooner than later always and just address it right away instead of half-ass approach your training and try to make everything work with a Band-Aid slapped over it. Things don't pan out long-term that way. You can't heal a deep wound by sticking a Band-Aid on it. No. That thing's got to be stitched up and taken care of and sewed up and then given time to heal. And that's what you need to do. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, and if I've learned anything about myself in all this retrospective looks I've been taking, like going back through my training logs, going back, watching all these old races, rewatching the races from last year. Mm-hmm. I am not the same athlete mentally that I was. I. Well, why would you be? Why would you be right now? Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's true. But like I, at one point, I don't give myself compliments very often, but f- for a couple year stretch, I was a killer mentally. I showed up just craving the the, the chance to break people I, because I knew no matter what happens, I'm not going to be the one that breaks. You might beat me, but it'll be because you're better. That is the only way you will beat me is if you are better than me in better shape and you execute that day. I knew that's the only way that like, and, and people beat me all the time, but I never, I felt like I never lost to anyone that I shouldn't lose to or that I shouldn't get beat by. I felt like I always was the one that was going to outperform my fitness, mm-hmm. that I was going to be the toughest guy who I raced against. And that's not a knock on anyone else. I just knew that. I was so supremely confident. And then listening to Atkins talk, listening to Woods talk, listening to Hunter, I realized, man, I'm a shell of that mentally. And this, this couple year process has taken a toll on me, but we always mm-hmm. talk the only way to get that back is through quality workouts. 
Yeah. Those are the things that I've been missing in consistency. And those are the things that I just crave getting back to where I can train every day, nail some quality workouts and have some like deep pain cave once a week type stuff where I can rebuild that racing edge that took so long to craft in so, so short amount of time to crumble. Do you feel like if your career ended today that you would look at it as unsuccessful? Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm too competitive not to. I think it's I think it's been successful in the fact that it has showed me that athletics is not my end game. I have a passion for coaching, I have a passion for speaking, I have a passion for for being involved in other people's success. So I could leave right now and just be a coach the rest of my life and be satisfied with who I am as a person. Yep. But I would have no hesitancy to say, yeah, I'd be disappointed in my athletic career. That doesn't so, yeah. no longer defines who I am as a person. And that's been a huge step for me. I can be disappointed in my athletics without being disappointed in me. And I never could do that before, but I'm not okay with that yet. I still need to have one last go around and know. Mm -hmm. um, you still feel like you have a lot to prove to yourself and maybe others. Yeah. I, it sounds kind of bad, but yeah, I, I just, Why is I that bad? This because I, I shouldn't have anything to prove. Sure. You should. That's like, do you always want that chip on your shoulder? I think yeah. that's okay. I just, I've said this before, but I just want to know. I just want to know where I stand in this current sport. If I come back and I put together a year of training and I have my mentality back and I go out there and I take seventh in a national race one, okay. I do the next one and I take eighth and then fifth and then, okay, I know I'm a top 10 guy that's, I'm just, the sport has progressed and that's a great thing for everyone. And I'm not a podium guy anymore at the biggest races, but I don't yet believe that deep down. I don't. Uh -huh. I see people doing things that I know I can do, and I know that I'm better than as an athlete. And that's a cocky thing to say, but you got to have some cockiness to be a good athlete. And like, I just won't give up that last like piece of cockiness inside of myself until someone stomps it out. And I won't like people have stomped it out, but I've had my excuse in my mind, like, well, it's I'm not I'm not at the point where I need to be. So until I can say I'm at the point I need to be and then they stomp it out, I just, it won't take. Well, there's something, you know, called cockiness and I would twist that and say self-belief. They're very different and yeah. I wouldn't describe you at cocky even in the smallest sense of the world where it's just self-belief. Mm -hmm. You've earned that self-belief, I think, you know, and you're 32, I'm about to be 37 in a couple of weeks here. I did not find this sport until I was 33. Uh, I think I ran my first race at 32 and turned 33 shortly. Point being is like, I just got started then. Like, I know it feels, I'm not like I need to give you like father time advice, but like you feel like time's not on your side. You have plenty of time. Honestly, yeah. man, you do. And look at Killian, look at Woods, look at Moat, look at Hobie. Um, the biggest thing is, and we talked about working through injury and we gave this advice on one of our first podcasts is people lose fitness because they lose focus when they're injured. And you're a guy who has not done that. And yes, it's going to be a suck fest that first three to six months of truly getting back into race shape, but you will do it because you're staying, keeping the fire lit, even if you're beat yeah. up. And that's the important thing. You know that, but just hearing that I think is important because like I said, I didn't even enter the sport till I was older than you are now. And, and those are the great things to you. And I'm thankful for, for, for having, you know, friends like you in my life. I've, I get calls from you. Ryan Kent called me yesterday and we had a good talk. He's, he and I have had like three really good talks throughout this. Like there are people in my life that are keeping things in perspective for me. And then mm -hmm. and Hobie was older than I am right now when I came into the sport. Like it's a good reminder that I could take an entire year. I could not come back till 2022 
and I'd still be younger than Hobie was when I first met him. Like, yeah, there, there is time. And, and that's what I'm starting to dwell on is take the time to do it right rather than mm-hmm. just keep patchworking together some frustrating training. You can, you know, when you're really fit, you can go through a frustrating block and be fine, but you can't string years of frustration together. It just doesn't work. Yep. You can only take so many punches before it, your fitness actually does drop and you can't, you can't get that back until you can train as you used to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ryan Kent, not to dwell on him, but isn't he hustling right now with like working a side job and like, he's yeah. trying to make ends meet with this no racing going on pretty hard. I, I know we haven't seen much from him, but I got a lot of respect for him driving truck and delivering stuff and making it work. 10 minutes into our conversation yesterday, I said, you got to come on. We got to talk with you. This is, this is stuff everyone needs to hear. So yeah, I agree. He's a guy, he's a guy that, um, I'd like to hear more from. He's, uh, once you get to know that guy, he's a good dude and he's, he's got a lot of good perspective. Um, but we're not talking about Ryan Kent right now. So, um, Bracken, um, I guess the, the last thing I want to work, we're going, you no, know, it's funny is we have our chats and we could talk forever and we're going on almost two hours here. And it seems like just like another day chatting with my friend Bracken. Um, so when are you getting this surgery, I guess, potentially, and, and, and you really are looking at the season as no racing, just so I understand. And right now that's not, you have no intentions. It's solely getting healthy now. Yeah. I'm, I'm putting zero timeline on it. If I get back out of surgery and my fitness comes around, I'll gladly race. Like I'll show up in Dubai and throw down. That'd be awesome. But if it doesn't happen, like I have no, I have nothing riding on getting back for a time. I have a fitness I, I need to be at. Okay. But you're getting your second knee surgery as soon as you can. As soon as I can. Can you get that now with the current health situation? I don't know. It's, it's a conversation today I have to have. Okay. Um, all right. And then the last thing I want to ask you, man, is can you tell the people, I know everybody that listens to this probably knows that we both coach right now. Um, just tell, tell us a little bit about your coaching and how people can get in touch with you and maybe just touch a little bit on your philosophy. If you, if you can, if you can just like sum that up in a quick. This is what we always ask our guests, right? Yeah. I want to know. I mean, do you have a training philosophy? I do. Um, and then how can people contact you about it and all that? Yeah. I believe that, that your aerobic development determines your scale, your scope as an athlete. And I believe in developing the aerobic, getting to the top of your aerobic ceiling as well as you can. And I believe in speed extension. I think that the vast majority of people we work with um, are lacking one of those two. They're either aerobic monsters who just don't have much speed or they have all the speed in the world and they can't maintain it for very long. And Mm -hmm. so I like attacking from that point of view. Extend the amount of of power that you have and extend the speed that you have. Just over Mm -hmm. the course of cycle after cycle, get faster at longer and then reset and do it faster and longer again. Well, you know, what's funny is everybody says, well, I just don't have the foot speed. I hear this so much. Like yep. I'm just not fast, but it's like everybody can run five minute pace. Yeah. Everybody can sprint at five minute mile pace, whether it's for 10 meters or hundred meters. It's just about being able to do that. Yeah. Efficiently or extend yeah. it over time. That's exactly correct. Most everybody has the speed they need in a, in a degree. It's more about the aerobic development yeah. uh, along the way. Yeah. And as anyone who listens to the podcast knows, I, I believe strongly in compromised running. And I'm not just talking for obstacle course racers. That's that's a given. Obviously, you have to be able to be compromised. But for every version of running, stride breaks happen, whether it's from your arms fatiguing or uneven terrain or even hills for a road runner. I, I feel like there is a lot of room to be gained from marathoners, cross-country runners, obstacle racers, mountain runners, from just being raising your capacity for compromised work. 
Yep. Everyone's efficient yep. until they're not. And what happens when you're not? And I think that's that's where I have the most passion for in terms of devising workouts. What happens when you're not efficient? Like the, the old adage, <laughs> everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. Well, I believe in receiving that punch in training and, mm-hmm. and, and formulating your body's response to that. Yeah. And we're getting punched in the face, hypothetically, every obstacle we tackle, every, you know, uh, undulating terrain or hill we hit in a race, all of that. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah. yeah, we have a lot of the same philosophies that way. As far as um, the services you provide uh, for the athletes, how do they get in touch with you? What's the best way to start that process? Well, this website is nearing completion, Kirk. We're getting a website. But it is not functional. And so uh, the gram message me on Instagram, message me on Facebook Messenger, or just email my first and last name at gmail.com for now. But Kirk, you and I both have running public email addresses that will launch as soon as the website launches. So that's going to be real nice and shiny. But yeah, message me and and we can uh, have a conversation and find out if it's a good fit. I'm not doing masses of training right now. I like working with people that interest me. And so yeah. I like to find out, it's kind of like dating. Are we a good fit? And then how do we move forward from there? Yeah. And uh, on the website, guys, as far as coaching with Bracken goes and myself, uh, we're just so you have an idea, we haven't worked out the, the intricacies 100%, but you will be able to choose your coach, either Bracken or myself. Um, and you'll find our offerings there. Or uh, you're going to be able to, so we'll call it coach with both of us, sort of a hybrid, uh, more group and group style um cost effective, but very still effective training plan. So you're going to sort of have three options uh, moving forward. But um, I think that sounds good. What else uh, What else do the people know about you, Bracken? Have I missed anything with you? A lot, of course, but anything you'd like to dive into before we sign off? I don't think so. I think I just want to reiterate that, that the concept of failing forward. Like if, if, yeah. if there's one thing you take away from my athletic career, my professional career, is that I just constantly fail at things. <laughs> and it's always the inciting factor towards towards my next success. I have never had a success that didn't stem directly from a big failure. Going all the way back to middle school and high school and then college and then that quote unquote pro racing career. Um, it's just like one success opens me up to the next level of failure. And then I find out what I didn't know or didn't have. And then I fail on a bigger scale and then I succeed on a bigger scale. And then I graduate up to the next level of failure. And, mm-hmm. and it, it starts depressing and it winds up invigorating, realizing like I'm failing on a level that I didn't even have access to before. So keep failing forward. Yeah, that's very good for the people to hear. It's a great message. What's that quote? I never lose. I either win or I learn, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um I think everybody, I think every athlete goes through that. And I think you've just, you've taken your lumps and I just, uh, I'm team, I'm fucking team Bracken, man. I think, uh, I think your day is still uh, going to come back around. So I'm excited to see it. I, I hope so. I believe so. Yeah, man. Well, uh, I got nothing else for you. I actually learned a good bit about you here, Bracken. That was nice. Well, I have some people I'd like to thank. Who do you want to thank, Bracken? Well, first of all, Lisa, I if you had to design like a wife in a laboratory, like, <laughs> it, it would be her. And people talk about being supportive. There is no one on this planet more supportive than she is in every aspect. Our life is crafted around everything we want to do. And she will make whatever sacrifice or adjustment needs to be made for us to keep that lifestyle focused on exactly what we want to do from 
from the first step on, she has just been fully in the boat of let's pursue our dreams together and pursue that dream life. And I love that. She's honest about everything, but she sometimes I feel like wants it more than I do. Like she is just so dialed in with support. And so I appreciate that. Second of all, Attack Fuel. They have fantastic products. They are my protein energy bar and uh, electrolyte sponsor. And I use them every single day. It's all um, vegan, if that's important to you. It's all natural. And it's so simple that it can't possibly cause any like GI issues. <laughs> I really like their hydrate product that comes yep. in the, uh, the packet. That stuff is so good. Yeah, I really like it a lot. Yep. Wearbands has been really supportive of me during my surgery rehab. They are, mm -hmm. it's like a func fully functional gym in a, in a box. You have a belt, you have um, wrist or ankle um, straps you put on and you connect um, resistant bands to them and you can do dynamic exercises. And I haven't been able to load weight on my knees for squatting and things. And so I've been able to do a lot of band work. And even though my recovery has not been smooth, it would be a whole, I'd be a whole lot worse physically right now in terms of what I've been able to maintain strength and mobility wise without wear bands. So I really awesome. appreciate them. They're based out of Colorado. It's a guy just kind of grinding. It's not this huge corporation. And, uh, and I appreciate that. So check out. That's it. That's in the video. Bracken just posted. I believe he had doing exercises. He's wearing his wear band belt and yep. bands. Yep. And then VJ Shoes, they've supported me for two years now, um, unquestionably. All three of these sponsors have been unquestioning during this uh, quarantine. Uh, sponsors aren't making the money they, they would normally be making if there were races and people at gyms and outside. Like people aren't using the same amount of protein and electrolytes and, and race shoes that they would normally use, and yet no one has asked me to take um, anything less. And that's, that's loyalty right there. And I really, really appreciate that. So if you have, if you're in the market looking for things, um, there's no better company to support than someone who is um, based in our country, supporting our athletes and doing it in a loyal manner. So check those three out. Yeah. And a lot of those companies too, what I find nice about um, the, the sponsors in our sport is there's just such damn good people behind the companies. I would not work with a company that doesn't have great people behind them. And I assume all the companies you work with are fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like to, I, as you can see, if you ever watch me on social media, I don't pimp products really. I don't really have much I do because I, it just doesn't sit right with me. So I like to partner with good people and products that are supportive and useful. Um, you, you'll hear when we talk to Ryan and to some other athletes, we've heard the stories, there are sponsors that are pulling back their support. Um, and I get it. It's understandable. But the fact that these have not is a really, really cool thing. And again, makes my life a little bit easier. Awesome, man. Um, and where can people find you on social media? I don't know if you laid out your handle. Uh, just Bracken Crocker. There's not many people with my name, so I get to use it for everything. So Instagram, Bracken Crocker, Facebook, Gmail. How are you? Bracken Cracker. That's right. uh, Bracken, this has been good. This has been illuminating, man. It's been nice chatting with you. It's our longest episode yet. We're going to have to cut some stuff out of this. Keep the people on the hook. Next nah, week, I'll leave it in there. Next week, can I introduce our star guest for next week? Yeah. The one and only Kirk DeWint. We're going to get to know the other half of the podcast. That's right, baby. Well, thanks for listening, guys. Bracken, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome.